Farm heard of? I have not. ISPs we do not have on Dagobah. Hey guys, how's it going? I'm Full On Gamer from the Star Wars RPG Network website. Or at least I'm prolific there. I'm calling from Fayetteville, North Carolina. Just calling to let you know I love your show. And no, I'm not a spammer, so you can approve my account. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> Uh, hey, it's TJ from the Wolf-Blooded Gamer Podcast, and for those of you that don't speak Shriwook, uh, Grombaka the Wookiee would like to let you know that he never listens to the Order 66 podcast, and if he ever saw those guys in person, he'd rip their arms right out of their sockets. D20 Radio, where gamers roll. Execute Order 66. Greetings, what is up, Gamer Nation? This is episode number 12, the Order 66 podcast, and it's a humongous day for us. It is absolutely humongous. (laughs) What is up, Gamer Nation? I am GM Chris, here as always with my faithful cohort, Mr. GM Dave. By golly. And uh, we we have another GM with us uh, here on the intertubes uh, this evening, don't we, Dave? That we do. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for... Our newest GM, GM Rodney, Rodney Thompson, Wizards of the Coast. Welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. It's great to be here. Rodney, thanks gonna... for being with us, Rodney. Oh yeah, no it, it is a honor to have you with us. And for the uh, podcast nation out there listening to us, we are going to have Rodney with us as a guest host for the entire show this time around. And so we'll be going through all of our normal banter and repartee. And then we've got a ton of questions for you, Mister Rodney, if you're up to the talent, up to the challenge. Well, I think I am. I've been prepping for this for uh, a couple of weeks now, and I think I've steeled myself self against the blaster bolts that are surely to be fired my way. <laughs> well, hopefully we'll, keep, we'll have them on stun setting for the most part. But I would we, appreciate we that. Good, oh, yes, yes, of course. But we've gotten quite a few questions, and uh, to the gaming community out there, the listeners of the show who've uh, been you know, anticipating uh, Rodney Thompson being on the, on the podcast... Um, you guys have sent in a lot of questions for us, and we've done our best to try and, and get them ready and sorted and, and ask most of them to Rodney. And so uh, if your question isn't answered, um, hopefully we'll be able to get to it uh, at a later show or in the forum. Uh, but thank you guys for taking the time to, to respond, to call in, and to email us and to post on the forum. And, of course, you guys can access our forum at www.d20radio.com forum, where you can sign on, become a member of the Gamer Nation, and post your mind. That's right, or you can contact us by, by email at gmdave at d20radio.com or gmchris at d20radio.com or call the loser line. Call the loser line, absolutely. 206-600-5872. Uh, yes. Lusa, L-U-S-A. Lusa! Lusa! 
Well, uh, before we kick off this long and, and ultimately amazing show, um, I did manage to walk down to the post office uh, yesterday, Dave, oh, and Lord. I was just amazed and impressed and, and astounded at the efficiency with which this imperial system is getting its mail to us, man. I got another postcard from Cody. It was clean, fresh, and pressed and had a beautiful imperial stamp on it. I'm just, I'm just amazed. Not impressed. All right, scumbag, pay attention. It's time for mail call. It is time for mail call. And with that, I think it's time, Dave, to check out this postcard from Commander Cody. From across the galaxy, it's time for postcards from Commander Cody. All right. Let's see what we got here. Oh, this is a very pretty postcard. Um, it's it's on kind of a, a waxy paper. There's a little bit of motor oil, it looks like, on it though. <laughs> and it says uh, it says visit Malastare. Let's see. Okay. Dear GM Dave and GM Chris. Thank you. Yeah. My unit is on Malastare this week, helping to convince some of the local non-human scum the error of speaking out against the sovereignty and truth of Emperor Palpatine's noble words. Way to go, guys. We did get some time, though, to watch a pod race here on Malastare. Very fast, very dangerous. It was fun, but our commander thinks such things are probably a threat to the Empire and must be shut down. Uh, well, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. I enjoyed the pod races, but must agree with my commander. Well, that is about all. If you are on Malastare very soon, go watch some fun pod races while you still can. Long live the Empire, your friend, Commander Cody. Not impressed. Not impressed. We're not impressed, man. Pod racing, Malastare. You know they're cleaning up all this, you know, non-human scum, all these dissenters from the the will of the Empire, man. I'm just, you know, it's pleasing to see that they're doing such a bang-up job. I think you and I differ somewhat on those opinions. Oh, don't be silly, Dave. You know we and and again, Imperial listeners. What of course GM Dave means to say is that he deeply respects the opinion of the Empire and its its noble ruler. And uh, and and we know, of course, the the Order sixty six podcast provides its its full support to um, the the Imperial regime. <clears throat> Isn't that right, Dave? No comment. No comment. Sorry, I'm re- I'm withholding judgment. Well, it's time for some real mail. Real mail, yeah. And apologies, I've kind of filed. I fired off the mail call a little bit early, so I'll fire up another one. Sit back down and shut your trap. It's time for mail call. All right, there. I did get it right this time. Oh yes. Okay, I want to start with a actually a. uh, You know what? Never mind. I'm I'm going to play this question for Rodney later during our question and answer. Because it came oh, yeah, in, okay. it came in from the Wolf Bloody Gamer guy, and oh, nice. um, it's a it's a dark side question that'll fit in pretty good later. Okay, cool. Well, Ronnie, maybe you can you can help help me on this one here. Um, I uh, I got this email a little while ago uh, from Darth Steve, who hails from the great state of Illinois. And uh, he writes, he says, uh, "GM Dave and GM Chris, um, thank you guys. I love your show. Perhaps you can help me out." I keep arguing this with my GM because I know he's wrong, but he won't seem to see the light side of it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I've heard that I, before. Uh, yeah, so have I. Yes. 
I have a scope on my heavy blaster pistol, and when I aim, I know that the range is reduced by one category. So, if I'm aiming at a target at short range, he's now at point-blank range, right? But my GM won't give me the benefit of point-blank shot at that range. Help me tell him how it's supposed to work. Ah, Thanks, mm. Again, love the show. Steve. All right, I, I got to well, interject one thing real quick. Mm. Is that during the movie, how great would it have been? My new apprentice, Doth Steve. Doth Steve. What the heck is that? doesn't carry the same ring, does it? No, not quite. Not quite. I mean, maybe if it was like your boss in an office, it'd be a little more intimidating. <laughs> oh, man, I see a whole new crop of YouTube episodes popping up. Sure. Oh, the adventures of Darth Steve. Darth oh, All right, here's your, here's your cube mate, Larry, and your boss, Darth Steve. Yeah, I'd be a little intimidated. <laughs> I'd be a wee bit intimidated, yeah. As long as, his, well, as, long as my Schwartz was bigger than his Schwartz. Yes. <laughs> You'd be fine. Well, Steve, um, I'm I'm sorry, and, and I gotta kind of agree with your GM on this one. Um, I did a little bit of, of research myself, and uh, I mean, of course, correct me if I'm wrong, Rodney. But mm-hmm. according to the frequently asked questions that's on the Wizards of the Coast forum, they actually have an answer to this, and they pretty much balls out say you don't get the benefit of point blank shot in the manner you're describing. That the scope simply moves the penalty for a range increment down to the next penalty, which in point blank, if this case, would be zero. Um, but, uh, I mean, I, as far as I'm aware, you would not get the plus one bonus for point-blank shot, you know, for using a scope at short range. Uh, that's actually correct. As far as I can tell, uh, the original intent of the way it was written was to be basically just a reduction in range penalty, right? Whereas point-blank right. shot, it's kind of there. The The actual, one of the best things about point-blank shot is it kind of encourages you to get closer to your target, right? The, exactly. the, whole, the whole point is to encourage mobility and stuff yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, man, that's that makes perfect it. sense. So there you go. I mean, from so sorry, Steve. You know, from a game design perspective, that's the explanation, and uh, your GM is very much correct. So I think you need to uh, uh, step away from the dark path, uh, eat a little crow pie, and uh, walk back to him and tell him that he is correct. Uh, I so. wish I had the sound from The Price is Right. Yeah, and that's one of those things that's not 100% clear in the rules, and I can see why he would have that question, but it was one of those things that uh, Gary Sarley was kind enough to clarify for people on the forums. Well, you know, I find that this is such an elegant system, and the rules are, are designed, it seems to me, above all else, th- above all else to make things simple. And sure. it's one of those things that if it sounds too good to be true, and it seems like you're getting something for nothing, right? Um, it probably is. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Now, if it was a, a feat or a talent, I could certainly see the argument being a little different. But given that it's a piece of equipment, and it's you know, equipment's one of those things in Star Wars that's just not really uh, as closely tied to your character as feats or talents or skills. Um, you don't really pay anything to get a targeting scope, so otherwise there'd be there'd be no point in having one or in not having one. And I love the fact that you're not tied to your equipment in the same way, especially when you yeah. compare it to other uh, D20 systems, especially games like you know uh, like Third Edition D and D, where you know you pretty much without a proper set of magic items, your your character is almost ineffective uh, yeah. at certain levels. So you know that's one of the things that really draws me to this system and why I like it so much. So yeah, so there you go, Steve. Thank you for the email. I'm sorry we don't have a better answer for you, but that's the answer to be had. Yep. Yep. Well, Dave uh, and Rodney, this week I managed to make it out to Tatooine, and it was hot. It was really hot. Damn but hot! I, I, it, was, it was damn hot! But uh, I, I braved the dust storms and made it over um, to Mos Eisley and to Wado's, and man, did he cut me a deal. Really? Let's see. 
is Watto for Watto's Bargain Basement, and I want you to come on down to Tatooine this week for our big special sale. Tell them Java sent you and you get a free chance cube. Uh, we got the deals for you. Come on down to Watto's Bargain Basement. Uh, what do you know? Uh... <laughs> I love that. I know it gets me uh, every time. Every time, every time. Well, dude, I came back with a crate of, oh, I really don't need them. You can refill them pretty easily, of liquid cable dispensers. Ah, Dave Rodney, have you guys seen these things? Oh, yeah. They're just, uh, they're just incredible, man. I mean, seriously, I'm going to start going spelunking. It's just, it's totally (laughs) awesome. These things are only 10 credits. 10 credits. That's it. And they're like two-tenths of a kilo. That, that's that's it. It's nothing. It's nothing. Yep. And it's it's a tiny little cylinder, and it fits on a in a belt pouch really nice and easily. And uh, you know, you push the little button, and this you know thick uh, liquid cable just fills out, which hardens instantly when it's exposed to air, and it turns into this incredibly strong rope. Dude. Uh, yeah. It'll hold twelve hundred pounds, man. Yeah, you can hold over twelve hundred pounds. Yeah, five hundred sixty kilos, which is over twelve hundred pounds. Um, the, the rope's got a twenty-eight strength, um, and a, like a DC twenty-four strength check just to burst it. Um, it's it's awesome, and uh, and it's refillable. And of course, you can use it with a grappling hook to swing your sister across an unnecessary chasm in the midst of imp- of an imperial facility. That's right. Yes, and you know, as as I'm sure, and of course, I'm sure Rodney can attest as a designer, um, Star Wars is is filled with unnecessary chasms and That's very right. large computer consoles and power conduits that you know can fry a, a creature alive, but seem to extend from floor to ceiling in the middle of rooms. Yeah, they're not so big on the safety regulations in the Star Wars universe. No, no. OSHA there. No, they're not. No. They they really aren't. But uh, which is all the more reason to have on handy a liquid cable dispenser and grappling hook, which is. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. You know, the great thing about liquid cable, too, is that it's really not that much weaker than binder cuffs, right? So if you're trying to subdue a weak enemy and you don't have a set of binders, liquid cable can certainly work in a pinch. That's a great idea. I've seen liquid cable used. We had, uh, you know, I came back from Waddles a while back with a crate of mesh tape. The other stuff can <laughs> be used wonderfully in a pinch. And uh, yeah, but I mean, this this stuff's awesome. The the myriad of uses for it is just great. Anything my character can have that I can find more than one use for, I want on the character. That's right. And, uh, and it's anyway. only two. It's only point what point two kilograms to carry. Yeah, it's two tenths of a kilo. It's, it's nothing. nothing. You know, as uh, I was reading the forums and someone's talking about their character had to fight a bad guy out over a big. Chasm to nowhere, as are very common in Star Wars, and right. ended up uh, their their key strategy that helped them win the fight was put some liquid cable wrapped it around the guy, let him go out onto the uh, out onto the bridge crossing the chasm, and that way he could fight the bad guys, knock him and not knock the opponent into a pit, and not have to worry about you know an errant force thrust into a right. pit to nowhere. Yes, well, hey, you know, pits to nowhere kill a lot of people. I mean, I mean, heck, Palpatine, you know, hey, you know, was it Vader that killed him or was it the thousand foot drop? Pits, pits no, to nowhere. The, They're a key part of Star Wars. Absolutely. But that makes Bantha Rush a pretty valuable feat, I would say. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that is what I got from Watto's. And unfortunately, I did not get a chance cube this time around. Oh, I think you're starting to get a little leery of me, Dave. Well, that's all right. We've already got like a half dozen. Yeah, so um, I don't know how many more I can get, but we did manage to package one up, Rodney, and mail it to you over there. And uh, thank you. you, absolutely, man, you should be receiving it in a couple days. That's great. You know, every time I go out there, he's always mysteriously out. Oh, 
Well, that's a shame. He's always there for me. Maybe, well, Rodney, did you call and make an appointment? <laughs> no. It, it's Watto. you got to make an appointment, man. Uh, he doesn't like being dropped in on, apparently. Well, he spends too much time gambling. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, he's never there. But, yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. There you go. Well, let's get to the meat of this show, Dave. What do you say? By golly, I've got a little production value. Let me fire it off. It's going to come out loud mm-hmm. for a second. All right. Oh, I like. Hey. I used this when we were talking to our boys across the pond. Oh, that's right. Got a couple of comments that they kind of like the production value in the background, so (laughs) what the heck? I'm liking the production value because, you know, we do it big here on the Order 66 podcast. Yeah, we do it really big. Absolutely, let me tell you. (laughs) With all the the endorsement money Dave and I get, you know. Right. (laughs) But uh, we've got a lot of questions for you, Rodney, and if you're ready to delve into it, um, we we can get started. Whenever you guys are ready, let's do it. All right. Well, I mean, we've had a lot of uh, a lot of fan interest, you know, with you being on the show, and you were kind enough, of course, to to post uh, that you know you were going to be on this show, um, not only over on Gleemax, you know, at the Wizards of the Coast forums, but also at your own site. That's right. Uh, and we've gotten several questions. We kind of uh, kind of broken them down into some uh, some basic categories here. We've had we've had a lot of people that had some pretty specific rules questions that you know hopefully we can we can get to. Um, but we had a couple listeners that really wanted to pick your brain on some generic questions, some generic aspects of of this system and and game design and its creation. And so uh, we're going to move to a segment that we're going to call metagaming. Cool. And uh, we had a question, uh, one of our first questions out there was from Reverend Duck. <laughs> and uh, he had a question for you um, on our forums. And he said, not so much Saga Edition, but in terms of Star Wars role-playing. He, says, com- he said, basically, compared to other role-playing games out there, such as you know, D&D or D20 Modern, what do you think Star Wars offers that's the most fun, exciting, and unique? What drew you to, to the Star Wars experience to help design it? What can you get from a Star Wars RPG experience that's difficult or impossible to emulate in other systems and settings? Wow, okay. Well, um, so starting at the beginning, what drew me to Star Wars in the first place was actually the same thing that drew me to role-playing games as a whole. I actually was like 12 years old. Um, West End Games was still publishing the Star Wars role-playing game. I'd never played a role-playing game before. I'd heard of D&D, but I'd never played anything before. And my family was on vacation in Disney World in Orlando, Florida. (laughs) And I stumbled across a copy of the Dark Empire sourcebook from West End Games. Oh, uh, it was it was in the gift shop at Star Tours, the the ride down there, and I picked it up because I was just a general Star Wars fan and was really excited about you know oh here's all this stuff on this comic book that I read, and I get into it and find oh there's all these rules and you know what is this is this some kind of game? And from there I, I got into the West End Games role playing game. So really what got me into it was the fact that it was the very first thing I ever played, and then you know it's always it's always held a special place for me, right? I mean, Star. I grew up watching Star, the Star Wars movies. My parents are huge Star Wars fans, right? They, I mean, they don't dress up or anything, but they, <laughs> you know, we always had a copy on VHS when I was growing up. We were, you know, the first ones there in line to go see it at uh, uh, the special edition launch. I saw Return of the Jedi in the theaters. I'm a little too young to remember seeing anything else, but I remember seeing Return of the Jedi in theaters, and uh, so yeah. What got me into that was was uh, you know my parents and then uh, they always took me down to Disney World for their Star Wars weekend. So I guess that's 
one of the things that makes Star Wars so great is the fact that it does have a license attached to it, right? And more so than I would hazard uh, any non-licensed uh, role-playing game or even a lot of licensed role-playing games, the best thing about Star Wars is that you've got a whole expanded universe of books and comics and uh, video games to look to for inspiration. Right. It's it's one of those settings that you know I can go and play a video game and say, wow, that's a really great idea. I want to take that back and throw it in my role playing game, and it it just works very easily. So, you know, having a, having a great license attached to the role playing game that's you know that that, that <laughs> certainly helps, right? I mean, do do. I, I would be very surprised if there are many Star Wars game masters out there that don't have a few novels or comics or Star Wars video games somewhere in their collection, right? So, That's very true. That's very yeah. true. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you guys do too. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, I don't want to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You should see my see my bookshelf. Yes, uh, but yeah, and that's what drew me to it. I mean, just as a player. But I mean, that's it's good to know that that's what what drew you to it as a designer as well. So that's yeah. It's just I mean, it's one of those deals where I've I've been so <laughs> bombarded by Star Wars my whole life. Thanks, mom and dad, who may or may not be listening to this. <laughs> uh, you know, I've been so bombarded by it for so long. And then the other thing too is Star Wars is so action-packed, right? I've been watching the Star Wars movies again recently uh, just to get kind of a, 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 you know, a refresher on uh, the feel and tone of the movies, which I do about once every two or three months, and it's just so action-packed and fast-paced, and that's something that the Star Wars role-playing game really gives you that a lot of other games either struggle with or they do well, but then they don't have the benefit of the license behind it, right? So it's... It's a universe where if it's crazy and you're you're looking at your players like you want to do what? It makes perfect sense to do that in Star Wars, right? Well, what do you mean you want to jump through a window and grab onto an assassin droid in the middle of Coruscant hanging 300 stories above the ground, right? You want right. you know, it's it's a place where you can do the impossible and be rewarded for that. And that's 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 a big big draw for me. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, that's that's excellent. Now, in in line with that, because um, you mentioned the expanded universe, um, we had a question on our forums from one of our users, Peteman, and he was curious to know in that vein, how much original content do you guys actually get to make? And he mentions, you know, in the old West End game stuff, when it was it came to the expanded universe, I mean, he imagines there was a lot of opportunity to really stretch out and let loose. But now, you know, it's this massive industry. It spans multiple fields. There's books and video games and comics. And, you know, it's probably, you know, nowhere near as important compared to the more uh, visible media, such as the movies. So how much original content do you guys get to make? Or how, how limited are you to the canon of the expanded universe? Um, it sort of depends. On, on some things, we can pretty much do whatever we want to do. In other areas, we're very limited. Uh, so we just did the... Um, well, I, I've been working on the Knights of the Old Republic campaign guide, right, which is coming out in August, and we were fortunate enough to have John Jackson Miller, who writes the Knights of the Old Republic comic for Dark Horse, as one of our writers. And, and then also uh, talented guys like Sterling Hershey and Abel Pena, who are also both EU veterans. And so that's a great example of a book where we had this kind of give and take. On the one hand, we 
weren't allowed to, and I wouldn't really want to anyways, but we weren't allowed to step on anything that was done by the movies, right? We, or by the video games. We couldn't really drastically change canon uh, as far as the video games goes. But on the other hand, your the the bigger freedom we have is in details, right? When we talk about a new land speeder or a new starfighter, those don't have ship classes, they don't have statistics, they don't have histories already established. So if I want to include, for example, the Orek uh, tactical strike fighter, the the starfighter used by the Old Republic in the Knights of the Old Republic video games, if we want to talk about the Orek fighter, what we do is we can come up with a whole history for it, manufacture, we talk about some of the interesting things in its history, and that's an area where it's very easy for us to create uh, canon, for example. That makes sense. Whereas, if you turn around and look at, like, Darth Revan or Darth Malak, they're very central to the games, they already have a lot of history established about them, and it's tougher for us to do new things with those characters. And, and for example, uh, the video games, you know, you can choose whether Revan is male or female, but there is an official canon version. We really can't go much beyond that just because Lucasfilm wants to preserve the gameplay experience of playing Knights of the Old Republic for the first time, of being able to determine who you are and what your history is. So you won't see a ton of new material for major characters like that, but you might get some background information, you might get uh, some information on, or you definitely will get the information on new ships, vehicles, stuff like that, where we've been able to create something out of nothing. And that's part of the appeal of things like the Knights of the Republic time period, or the legacy era of the comics, is that you can really do a lot with that as, as a licensor, like us, because there's not a lot out there already. Uh, you know, we still want to do things with the Rebellion era or with the, you know, the Clone Wars prequel trilogy era, but it's much easier for us to kind of branch out on our own. And we're usually allowed to, as long as it doesn't conflict with upcoming plans. Gotcha. Well, I mean, that makes sense. It sounds like you guys have at least, you know, some measure of, of you know, full, you know, creative, you know, content development, you know, in terms of, of sure. fleshing out the EU, which is, um, you know, that that's that's our that's heartening. I guess. Yeah, well and, and so if you look if you if you look at West End Games, one of the things that they really did was they provided a lot of detail on the empire, you know, their their organization, their rank structure or on the rebellion, right? They weren't necessarily creating whole new storylines, although they do have, you know, many characters and and things like that that are still recognizable today, but they they did provide a lot of background information and that's where the RPG can really excel is in providing background information to give you a basis to build on as a game master. Gotcha. Well, that that's fantastic. Now, speaking of of West End Games and a lot of the, you know, you talked about the the detail they did, you know, when it, especially when it came to to fleshing out the Empire and a lot of the a lot of the the dark side stuff. There was um, we had a question, sort of a, a metagame mechanic question um, from one of our posters, Clacky, and he had a question kind of about the dark side and in particular um, dark side points. And in in not even West End Games, but just previous editions of of the D twenty system. Um, he basically his question was in the last edition if you use the dark side you got a force point bonus at lower levels but it became a penalty at higher levels and he figured this was cut out in the new system just to simplify the game drastically but is there any plan to implement any type of rule or rule set to represent how the dark side is is quicker or more seductive as they kind of talk about in the movies the short answer is yes the longer answer is uh 
originally we had planned on having several source books out by now. Unfortunately, due to uh, the way that schedules have shifted around, we've had only uh, a couple of things come out since the core book launch. So the goal of the core book's mechanics is to provide the simplest and most streamlined um, version of the game we can possibly provide and then build on that with source books. I kind of see the model as, you know, we give you the core book and that's what you need to play, right? And then you pick which source books you want to use and add them on kind of like modules. Now, if you want a game where the dark side is more tempting and more seductive, then you're going to want to pick up the Force Unleashed campaign guide because what I did in there was I wrote up a set of uh, their optional rules, but they they pretty much integrate directly with the existing rules that provide a means of making the dark side more seductive. I know a lot of people were uh, talking about making it so that people can use, for example, dark side force powers that they didn't actually have in their force suite. Right. Um, we've got a method in there for basically you can you know, take an increase to your dark side score and gain temporary access not only to dark side force powers, but also dark side talents as well. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, we're now... I can't go into too much detail about how that's going to work mechanically because we're actually still able to change things and I don't want to say one thing and then when the book comes out it looks totally different. But yeah, so what we want to do is provide that option for you but we but it didn't necessarily we didn't feel like it needed to be uh, a core part of the system because well, frankly, a lot of the dark side force powers are really strong in the first place, right? Like force force lightning is an incredibly strong power. Oh yeah. Yeah, we we talked about that in our last episode. Yeah. Yeah, and so I, I felt at the time like the force powers kind of stood on their own, and if you wanted more than that, then we'll give you more than that, but we didn't want it to be a, a core rule, for example. Well, that seems like a very sound design philosophy, in my opinion. One of the things that really bugs the heck out of me, when especially, I mean, um, I mean with, uh, to be frank, even other Wizards of the Coast systems, such as current D&D, is the fact that, you know, okay, here's this set of rules, and oh yeah, here's all this too. And it's not, you know, okay, the, here's the core, and it's streamlined. It's it, it's literally almost an inundation that you right. pretty much have to have this library of canon just to play the game. You know, I feel like I'm going to RPGA sessions with a tote, you know, I mean, of, of just, <laughs> you know, a little mini library session. And the fact that I can just pick up this streamlined course set and go play a Dawn of Defiance module. I mean, that that's, you know, a breath of fresh air to me. So sure. I, I totally am digging that design, that design philosophy where you talk yeah. about making that simplistic core rules, but hey, if you want this, here it is. And that's beautiful. It's fantastic. Yeah. Well, what, what we want to do is, and now I will say this, um, from what we've seen so far, it seems like the people that buy the core book, most or many, I will say, of them will also buy source books, right? Now, um, with D&D, you have a much bigger drop-off between core book sales and uh, source book sales. So we can kind of get away with doing a little bit more in our Star Wars books because we can be a little more sure that people are going to be buying them that are playing the game. Um, I don't want to create a lot of interdependency, but I don't want to treat the books like they're in a vacuum. And the other thing I, I really want to do is, as the books come out, I want every book to be valuable to you as both a player and a game master. Because, like I say, so many people, so many of the of the fans that bought the core book also buy the source books. I don't want a bunch of books sitting on your shelf that 
you know, you say, I would never use that because I'm just a player, or I have very little use for that because it doesn't help me game master. I want the books that are coming out to be useful for both people so that it, it, it so that it holds value, right? I mean, I also have an enormous shelf of D&D books and uh, third-party D20 products that I don't use a lot of those, but I found that I use my old West End games, Star Wars books, a lot more <laughs> than you know, I yeah. would any other book in the system. So I I don't want to give the impression that every single book is going to be completely standalone, but like I say, I kind of think of them as modules, right? Like you take your core book, and that's where you start, and then you say, okay, we want to play in the Knights of the Old Republic era, so we're going to take the Knights of the Old Republic module, and we're going to stick that onto the game. And then we want to do a game that's about, um, oh, let's say we want to be smugglers in the Knights of the Old Republic setting, so we're going to take Scum and Villainy, and we're going to stick that module on, right? And so you take those three books, and you've got a campaign right there. Gotcha. Well, that will, that sounds fantastic because it's the same way with me. There's books on my shelf that I've not cracked in a year, two years, you know, yeah. just because they have almost no relation whatsoever to a campaign that I'm not playing in, or you know, you know what I mean. They've, you know, I bought them for one specific purpose, and I have some that I've never used, you know, because they're just that specific. And um, that's heartening to see that you know the, the, you guys are striving for that level of of diversity and and usefulness. Sure. So. Now, whether we succeed or not, I'll leave that up to you guys. <laughs> but I'll try. Well, you've, you've done a yep. damn fine job so far, so you know you got my hopes up. Yes, one uh, source book down, and we're kicking butt. <laughs> kicking butt. There you yes. go. Hey, uh, uh, Chris, I've got uh, this is appropriate time, I think, to to throw in the dark side question that I had from Great. our loser line, and this comes to us from the Wolf Blooded Gamer podcast. It's a little bit long, but uh, bear with it. Hey guys, this is TJ from the Wolf-Blooded Gamer uh, role-playing game podcast. I love the show. You'll probably see me showing up on the forums pretty recently. Um, I've been getting into Saga Edition, and I've gone through some of your back episodes. Finally got to episode 10, which I believe is the most recent. You were discussing the dark side in detail, and you were talking about how you really thought it was important to treat falling to the dark side as character death, as is in the rules as written. I personally kind of uh, think I'm, I might go the other way with that in my campaign. Because if you think about it, if one of my players, you know, his actions lead to him falling to the dark side, and he has the opportunity to come back as a player and play like a dark Jedi Sith Lord or something against the party, I mean, pardon my French, I know you're an explicit podcast, but fuck yeah, I'm going to let him do that. I mean, that's awesome. I could kind of see, you know, in a D&D game, it's irritating if you have one player that's just being a total munchkin and trying to kill everyone else. But this is Star Wars, and one of the coolest parts about Star Wars is, you know, falling to the dark side. Who didn't go back and play Knights of the Old Republic through again as a dark character? So anyway, that's just my opinion on that. Hope it wasn't too long, and keep up the good work. So... That's an interesting point of view, I would think, but um, I don't know. Your thoughts? Uh, well, I mean, it, it really is all up to you how you want to run your game, right? And I think that's totally a legitimate style of play. In fact, I have a hard time saying anything is not a legitimate style of play, but I think that if you want to have an adversarial-type game like that, you certainly can. It's very challenging, and I wouldn't recommend it for a new game master. But I think that, yeah, every now and then that's cool. Now, what I would totally 
think would be really cool is, you know, your character falls to the dark side, the game master takes it away. Down the road, your your character shows back up as a bad guy, and the party redeems him, and then you get to pick up that redeemed character once more. That would be a little bit cooler, in my opinion, if you're running a heroic game. Now, if you want to run a game that kind of skirts on the dark side, or, you know, is even a, a full dark side campaign, then yeah, totally ignore the whole game master takes away your character's uh, aspect of the rules, you know, we, this this is why we have a game master instead of an automated, you know, game master machine, right? So right. the GM can can make decisions like that. Uh, I'm very much a, a big fan of empowering the GM to do whatever the heck he wants to do. So, yeah, totally totally cool by me if that's how you want to run your game. We're not going to support that uh, right now in, for example, RPGA play, just because. We want to present the best cooperative experience possible, um, and that's just you know the way we're running, uh, like Dawn of Defiance RPGA, and the books are going to be written from the perspective that you're playing good guys, just because that's what the majority of players do play, right? Um, we've studied it across all role-playing games, studied it as far as Star Wars players go, and most people actually play good guys and want to play good guys. Uh, and that's so that's going to be what we're going to support out of the, right out of the box. But you know, we still include dark side feats and talents and stuff like that in the player section for a reason, right? Yep. I mean, we totally we we want to leave the door open. It just might not be our focus. And it sounds like a really good recipe to get a uh, when good games go bad segment out of this guy. So you know, and with that. I'll just interject. If it happens, uh, yeah, let us know, man. But yeah. no, listen, and in, in terms of that, you know, when, when Dave and I made that suggestion on the show, I mean, this is, uh, again, it, as Rodney said, it's all about, in my opinion, you know, your GM style. I mean, listen, one of the, about, probably about the third game I think I ever played in this system, uh, the G, I was not GMing, and the GM said, hey, let's have fun. Let's have, let's have an M- Imperial campaign. Okay, mm-hmm. he said, you know, and you, we're all going to play Imperials, and you guys are going to be servants of the Empire. If you want to make a Force user, you need to maintain a dark side score greater than your Wisdom score, and that was <laughs> that was his take on it. And we had we had a dark Jedi, we had a a Force using noble, uh, you know, we had a couple uh, a soldier, a scout, and a scoundrel, and we had a blast. But the game ended very badly, <laughs> and in in the game the force users outshone all the other characters rather drastically and it was because they didn't have any type of of check or balance on their force use and uh evil campaigns dark side campaigns they can be really cool um the imperial campaign is a classic from uh the west end games days in fact i uh believe we'll have a section on imperial campaigns in an upcoming book though i can't say which one because it's not one that's been announced so far uh it's it's a totally cool game to run. It can be very challenging because, like you say, they can disintegrate in a hurry without those sort of moral character breaks to put on people. It can be very easy for a player, and even a well-intentioned and experienced player, to say, well, I'm a villain, I'll do whatever the hell I want to do, and force choke his best friend to death or something, right? And exactly. when, when your character gets killed, then there's a little bit of resentment. I mean, we've all seen how inter-party conflict can cause difficulties with the game well <laughs> if you're running a dark side campaign you're gonna have some inter-party conflict and that's all there is to it yep yeah pretty much so yeah but you know the, again i think you're totally right rodney it's all about the gm what they can handle their level of experience and the maturity of the players that they're playing with right and you know you know the game you, you know the gamers you're playing with whether it's going to be a good idea or not so yeah 
But a very cool call. So thank you for calling in with that. Very nice. Yeah, that was great. Well, we're going to kind of move on now to a different set of questions, um, a little more technical ones, I guess you could say, um, in a segment that uh, we want to call Them's the Rules. Uh, where basically we had many of our listeners, they took the opportunity to post some real sticky um, or confusing or unknown rules questions. And I know you, you and I and, and Dave were chatting kind of before we started recording the podcast, and you mentioned, you know, that, you know, uh, even though you are, of course, developer of the game, uh, you're, you're, you know, you don't exactly, I guess none of us do have an encyclopedic knowledge of the, uh, of the rules. Uh, but, uh, you know, d- despite that, um, we're going to try and, and uh, pepper you with, with some, some difficult questions that hopefully you can help us come up with an answer to. Will do. Let's see how I do. <laughs> All right. Well, to start with, we actually had some questions of a rules nature that um, weren't even posted on our forums, but were posted on the thread you started uh, over on the Gleamax forums. And okay. uh, Co- Code Artist 0815 had a question. He said, what was the rationale? So kind of a more of a game design question as well. What was the rationale for preventing a noble from benefiting from her own talents? Uh, the natural assumption is that the character is her own ally. If the leader of a party is making an impassioned plea to fight on and it grants her party a plus one to attack, wouldn't she in turn be inspired by her party's surge of confidence and receive a plus one as well? Um, and he, he said additionally, you know, uh, most officer talents benefit the character invoking them. So he's curious to know why noble talents were singled out this way. Okay, um, so part of it is for the very easy you know, answer is to say, well, it's so that you don't build your super munchkin character and find yet another way to give yourself an extra bonus, right? I mean, lots of the classes have uh, typed bonuses built into their talents and feats, and so it was one of those deals where we didn't want it to be like, oh, well, I'll dip into Noble for a level and pick up this talent, and yeah, okay, my friends are getting a benefit, but that's just yet another plus one. And then... Yeah, and, and part of it also is, you know, you, you draw the comparison to the the officer there. The officer is a prestige class, right? And so there's got to be something that makes the prestige class better than the noble. I mean, yeah. otherwise, we might as well make those officer talents noble talents if they aren't significantly better. And one way we do that is by letting them apply to the officer as well. So part of it is balance. I mean, yeah, you take a, a one or two base attack bonus hit when you drop into that class, but you know we want it to be a little easier for you know the noble to become valuable to other people without becoming a, a, a no-brainer dip class, right? That makes sense. Well, then, Dale, thank you for that. Yep. Um, also on that same thread, uh, we had a question from Douglas N. Uh, he said, you know, hey Rodney. Um, he says uh, his question hasn't made it into the official Star Wars podcast. It's it's his opinion, uh, and it's just a suit to the Order sixty six. So he basically reposted it. He says uh, since he's known role playing games going back to AD and D, every source book for a certain class or race made that class or race more powerful. Uh, his opinion and general consensus on the board and people he knows is that uh, SWSC Saga is a very balanced system. So he's curious to know what steps are going to be taken in the design process of the upcoming Jedi source book to ensure that that balance holds up. That's a really great question. Uh, well, so one of the things that I've tried to do, um, basically starting with uh, Threats of the Galaxy a little bit, but pr- 
primarily starting with Night Sealed Republic, we have a much more rigorous playtesting process in place. Previously, playtesting was actually handled by the authors of the books, but I uh, had a little powwow with Chris Tulock, who is the RPGA content manager uh, and also handles all the playtesting for D&D, and basically we've set up a more rigorous playtesting method where we are letting some of the better playtesters out there take a crack at Saga Edition, and so far, it's worked out great. In fact, just last week, I took and compiled and made changes to the mechanics in Night's the Old Republic based on playtesting. Now, the thing about it is, you know, I appreciate the compliments on Saga Edition being very balanced, but the, the fact of the matter is, no game system ever survives contact with its players, right? I mean, there have been <laughs> loopholes jump up, and, you know, we obviously have an errata document for a reason. Um right. Yeah, it's it's one of those deals where we want more people to try it out beforehand. Now, we can't really... Well, no, we, there's no really about it. We can't do open playtesting where we just say, Hey, anybody want to come playtest? Come on! Just because of the nature of the license. Um, right. But limited playtesting is more acceptable, and we're doing a uh, more thorough job of that. Also, uh, before playtesting even starts, I take about six weeks... Um, usually our, our development cycles are six weeks. I take six weeks to do a development pass on the book. Now, the difference between a designer and a developer, obviously, is that the designer creates the mechanics and the developer tears them apart and tries to figure out how to make them work best. So I get about six weeks on every book to do my development pass before it even goes to playtesting. So, um, yeah, that's that's pretty much the long and short of it. Cool. Well, thank you for that. And that's an excellent question, so thank you for addressing it. Um, back to some more, I guess, specific rules questions. Mm-hmm. On our own forums, uh, we have one, one of our more prolific posters, uh, the Notorious KFC. Um, mm-hmm. He brought a question that's actually been bounced around several of our forum members trying to find an answer to it. And it's a question dealing with the negate energy power. And in particular, how much damage is negated by it when we're talking about damage dealt by a weapon that deals both physical and energy damage, such as a, a force pike or an electro staff or a bow caster, um, you know, which which deal you know like you know, piercing and energy, you know, or, or bludgeoning and energy. Um, and he mentions, you know, in his own home games, they do a rule of kind of half, you know, when they use the negate energy power. Is there an official ruling on this anywhere? Uh, there's not in any of the books so far, but I will say that everything I'm about to say is also going to be in print in the Knights of the Old Republic campaign guide. Um, basically, the way we're treating it is if something ha- says, you know, uh, bludgeoning and energy damage, then it's considered to be doing both simultaneously, right? It's all, it basically becomes either one. So if a mechanic, for example, negate energy says it negates energy damage, then this is treated as energy damage. So yes, when a lightsaber does energy and slashing, you can negate the, the whole damage because it's considered to be both. There's not half and half. It's just, think of it like a big mixture of damage, right? And so if you can negate one, you can negate both. Uh, by the same token, if you look at the DR rules, uh, it uses actually the D&D uh, 3.5 method where it's DR slash slashing or DR slash bludgeoning that tells you what gets by that DR. So if, it, if it's DR slash energy and it does energy and slashing, then it gets by your DR because it is, in fact, considered both. Well, that makes perfect sense, and that's an excellent uh, analogy to think of it as. And, of course, like most everything else I've seen in the system so far, that is the simplest uh, solution yeah. to, to deal with it, to, to make it easier for gameplay. So, 
That's yeah, fantastic. there 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 may be some logical dis- disconnect given that a force pike is largely a physical weapon, but it's not gonna break your game if they get to negate all the energy from one force pike attack, right? And if you're trying to avoid, you know, negate u- them using negate energy, then don't use weapons that do energy damage on them, right? Yeah. It it is a little bit simpler and take that as good or bad however you want to, but it makes the game go faster, and that's really one of the bigger concerns. Well, in my opinion, that's a wonderful thing. We had an argument about this in one of my own games not two weeks ago, and mm. it was kind of, you know, like, oh, God, okay, and we, we finally agreed to take half damage because, there, you know, again, there was nothing I could point to. Sure. But, you know, with this, I, I agree with, it, with that ruling. I think, it is, I think it is easier and more simpler and makes the game go a bit faster. Yeah, now, it's not really terribly clear. If you look in the damage type uh, section of weapon qualities on page 120, uh, basically it says if it says and that the weapon deals both types of damage simultaneously, what we're going to do is clarify that that basically means that it it's considered both. Gotcha. Okay, well, cool. Thank you. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> now we had another question brought up a little while ago by Tal Khan, one of our own posters, which we tried to answer. <laughs> we attempted to answer in our D20 docking bay, and it was in regards to um, the scout talent total concealment. Basically, where if uh, an individual, a scout, gains concealment due to due to low light, um, then or, or due to you know smoke, fog, or whatever, if they just gain concealment, then that would be sort of upgraded to total concealment. And uh, the question came from the fact that, okay, well, what if you're gaining concealment from low light? And now, of course, it's total concealment with the talent. Um, and something has low light vision. Is the total concealment negated as well, even though low light vision only negates regular concealment? And we kind of said, well, yeah, duh. But yeah. is there kind of an official answer to that? Uh, the official answer is that you guys were correct. Now, the, the key thing that makes this possible is the total concealment talent says any situation that would give you concealment grants you total concealment instead, right? So that basically means if they have concealment, then it gets upgraded to total concealment. Low light vision, uh, if you read on page 257, says that you ignore concealment due to darkness. So you're ignoring the initial situation, which is concealment, so it never gets upgraded to total concealment. That makes perfect sense. Cool. Well, thank you for that clarification. Certainly. 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 We had another kind of an odd question. Um, from one of our posters, Death MVP, and basically he said, why is it easier, quote-unquote, to die when you're four steps down the condition track than when you're five steps down unconscious? And what he's basically getting at is that a, a conscious PC who's four steps down the condition track, they, they take, they're, you know, they're at minus 10 on, on, on the condition track. They have a, a minus 10 to their damage threshold that an unconscious PC does not share. Um, so it's actually easier to do damage and kill that that you know four steps down the condition track pc than it is an unconscious pc why is this the case i mean is that the case does the unconscious pc um not retain that minus 10 to all their defenses and such uh that is the that is in fact the case rules as written an unconscious pc is not taking that that minus 10 penalty now before i go into the whole explanation i will say this if you're not cool with that then feel free to change it it's not going to totally destroy your game to apply that penalty to unconscious people so go for it if that's what you want to do part of the reason for not having that penalty on it is because at low levels and even honestly at mid levels you're more likely to be knocked unconscious than you are to be knocked down the condition track you know four steps and it's all about not wanting to we did intentionally make it harder to die because there's no resurrection in Star Wars and if you die you die and 
frankly, character death is one of those things that can become a huge stumbling block. And um, this is one of the reasons why we made it so tough to die is because we, I say we, but mostly I think that if a character is going to die, it shouldn't be by random chance and it shouldn't be because... You know, oh, he's been un- he's been knocked unconscious by a blaster, and they lob a grenade in there, and well, you have no chance to avoid or dodge or keep fighting, so you get blown up by the grenade, right? I want death to be a little more meaningful in my games, uh, so I don't make that ruling. But personally, uh, or but but rules as written, it's basically to say, you know, once you're already knocked unconscious, you're pretty much out of the fight anyways. The odds of you getting back up and fighting are very slim. You've already been penalized for that. There's no reason to kick them while they're down. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's so it's so that unconscious players aren't at such a disadvantage that they get totally killed. Well, that makes sense. I mean, even if you're at negative 10, you're still, you know, you might be at half movement, but at least you can move, you know? Sure. At least you yeah, can... And- at least you can- do something. You know, when, when you're up, you can still use force powers to negate energy or to rebuke. You have more options than if you're unconscious. Now, like I said, apply the penalty if you're unconscious. It's not going to destroy your game. It's just not the way the rules uh, are going to support it in, in the official publication. Well, that makes sense to me, at least. But thank you for that clarification. Um, now, we got another kind of sticky question. Um, actually, a couple of related questions from a couple of our posters, Donovan Morningfire, who's also actually another very prolific poster over on the uh, Gleamax forums. Yes, um, and also on my forums as well. And your forums as well. Yeah, he's a, just a heck of a community member um, right. for all of us. And uh, another one of our posters, Millen of Six, had a question about uh, vital transfer. And uh-huh. Donovan wanted to know, regarding the vital transfer power, can you use it on yourself? So this is one of the things that uh, obviously we disagreed about on the forums for a little while. My view on it and the view that is, in fact, official uh, and will be clarified in the next errata update is that no, you cannot um, because it is to be used on someone else. Well, I think it says that kind of point blank in the core rulebook. I wasn't sure where the where the confusion would come from, but some well, people said the, the confusion. The confusion comes in that it says creature touched, which in D&D me, can mean yourself as well. That's mm. not what it is intended to do. Okay, well that's fantastic. Now, Millen of Six had a related question re- regarding it. He sort of related a, a situation in his own games where he had two Jedis that learned Vital Transfer, and basically they would just, you know, just go nuts in combat, and then in between encounters would just use it on themselves to heal themselves to full. I mean, just, you know, like that, in between encounters. And he found that rather abusive. And he wanted to know, you know, are they are they finding a loophole in this, or was this is this intentional with power design? It's not a loophole. It is correct rules as written. Um, I will say this, though. I think that we were probably a little too stingy with hit point recovery in the core rules, and that's something that we're going to be correcting in upcoming source books, just via more character options. Um, we don't want the Jedi to basically have this advantage over other party members in that they can just basically, you know, heal themselves up to full really quickly and, you know, then maybe turn around and heal their party up to full. We don't want it to become a situation where, you know, the party has a fight and then, you know, half an hour later, however long they want to rest, suddenly everyone's magically back up at full hit points because right. two Jedi have, have vital transfer. So for now, they're not breaking any rules. However, I will say this. Um, it's something we're looking at changing for the next errata just to make it so that you can't have the, uh, in, you know, the never-ending fountain of hit points out of two Jedi. Uh, but for now, I don't have the solution to give. 
Okay. Well, that hey, that's it's good to know at least they're they're looking at it. I can yes. you know, stress an example from you know one of my own games. I have I have a buddy who's a GM, and in his games, he runs it to where uh, vital transfer cannot be used to heal hit points that were garnered or that were lost by using vital transfer. Um, the the idea that you know you can't use the force to heal damage caused by the force. And, that is uh, a that's a good solution. It's a little tough to keep track of sometimes, is, but yeah, otherwise, I think it's fine. Yeah. So there you go. Well, thank you for that. Um, now, in regards to uh, let's kind of kind of switch gears here. Um, we had a uh, kind of a strange little little technical question um, regarding some of the text in the book. Um, one of our posters uh, imagines. Uh, he says, uh, Rodney, one thing I'm curious about uh, in the section on setting challenges on page two forty six two forty seven of the core rulebook. Uh, the text reads, if the result is four or more levels above the hero's level, expect the heroes to have a real fight on their hands and also brace for one or more hero deaths. I'm not sure whether to assume the text assumes that the heroes will still have a force point or two stashed away so they can bring themselves back from the brink, or whether we're talking about an honest-to-God send the character out to sea on a burning boat death. Um, can you clarify? I think he's having some issues as to whether he's designing his encounters at the proper uh, level. Oh, well, basically the answer to that one is it's just a convenient way to say that there's a chance that some characters might die. Now, it, we could have said in longer words, there's a chance that some characters might die, or also they might have force points to keep themselves from dying, or also they might get healed and not die, or also they might yada, yada, yada. It's just an easy way to say this is a potentially lethal situation. Don't right. n- doesn't necessarily mean that characters will die. Film at 11. Uh, but it, <laughs> it it does mean that it's a possibility depending on your particular situation. So I wouldn't put too much stock in the actual technical wording there. But yeah, it's possible. Okay, cool. Okay, I got a weird question for you um, from another I love one of weird. our. Uh, oh, good, good. Um, this is from another one of our very prolific posters on our own forums, Lord Ironballs, who I will say again has possibly the coolest forum <laughs> avatar I have ever seen anywhere by anyone ever. Um, he wants to know what are the mechanical stipulations with characters standing atop of colossal or colossal plus creatures and vehicles and attacking them? Um, a few points to address. Does the creature or vehicle lose its dexterity points, uh, dexterity bonus to reflex defense? Does the attacking character need to make an acrobatic skill check if the creature or vehicle is moving? Does the creature or vehicle take a penalty to attack the character that's standing on top of them? Um, kind of an odd scenario, but I can see it happening for certain, you know, in certain situations, you know, real epic cinematic stuff in the game. Yeah, it's the old, can the halfling climb on top of the dragon and stab it in the head trick uh, really question much. version for Star Wars, right? Um, there's no official ruling on that, clearly. Uh, what I personally would do is actually treat whatever creature or vehicle this is as terrain and not necessarily an opponent. Were I designing that encounter? Um, now, if it's just something that you happen to come up against and you want to climb on top of it, this is one area where your game master is probably going to have to make a few judgment calls. And, um, you know, like I said earlier, I'm very much in favor of this. Uh, you're probably going to have to make some acrobatics checks if it is like a walker, for example, that's shaking back and forth. The, the, best, the best way I can um, think to describe it is, say, you know, this is a piece of terrain. And so if the vehicle's weapons, for example... Uh, can't turn back and fire at you, then they just can't turn back and fire at you. There's there's probably not going to be any official rules for climbing an ATST or a huge creature, just because those are 
they, they, they differ from, from encounter to encounter, right? Or from creature to creature. Um, it's just going to be one of those areas where you have to use logic and the spirit of the rules to come up with a, whatever ruling on the fly. Um, for now, anyways. Like I say, though, you know, if you have, in, in Star Wars, it's especially problematic, right? Because climbing on top of a colossal ATAT, for example, yeah, it's not going to be able to shoot at you. You're, it's probably going to be pretty stable, it might wobble a little bit. But if you're on top of, you know, a Rancor, it can reach up and grab you or, you know, shake you off a lot easier than an ATAT could. So it's really going to depend on the individual creature so much that it would be very difficult to create. A universal set of rules for that. So my best advice is to uh, use these sample skill DCs that you find throughout the skills chapter for things like climbing on top of it and staying on top of it. Um, it probably would lose its, you know, things like that would lose their dexterity bonus to reflex defense. But other than that, um, any special circumstances probably need to be dictated by your game master. And that's always a wise. Wise piece of advice, of course, for things that are that odd. I mean, this isn't something that's obviously going to come up every day. True. So, so excellent, cool. Well, sir, I have a question for you. Oh, good. Uh, that uh, is kind of, kind of, kind of this kind of brought to the forefront of my mind. Uh, kind of a semi-design question, I guess, and a rules question. Um, when you mentioned uh, acrobatics check here, um, one of the beautiful things I found about this system is that it, it diverged from a lot of previous systems in the streamlined nature of the skill system, and that it did. Th- beautiful things like combine you know what were, what were previously you know several skills into stuff like acrobatics you know and you know perception stealth mm. so on and so forth what was the decision that kept climb jump and swim as separate skills i've played other systems where there's been athletics and things of that nature and it seems you know kind of a, a you know that it, all this wonderful you know uh, sort of combination was made to to streamline things but what was the decision to make leave those skills separate uh, well, you know, it's actually funny. Uh, about, gosh, I want to say uh, three, four months after I started working at Wizards of the Coast, this would have been last summer, uh, James Wyatt was working on the skills section of D&D 4th Edition and comes up to me and he's like, do you guys use athletics or do you use climb, jump, and swim? And I said, well, we did climb, jump, and swim, but honestly, the one thing that I've heard more complaints about from our fans is why aren't climb, jump, and swim combined into athletics? So... D&D 4th Edition uses athletics instead of climb, jump, and swim. (laughs) Um, For us, the decision was made at the time because, A, there would be no other strength-based skills, and strength is already kind of a dump stat um, in that dexterity is kind of king in Star Wars. Mm -hmm. If I had it to do over again, would I change it? Maybe. Um, In fact, I I would say probably just because... Um, you know, we could find other ways to fix that whole strength as a dump stat thing, um, but it would require kind of redesign of many skills and the way things are done from the ground up. Uh, if you want to house rule it that way, knock yourself out. It does shrink <laughs> down the soldier's um, skill list a little bit. Sure, so you want to you want to expand the soldier's skill list a little bit. If you do that, if you collapse those three down into one skill, I'd say add persuasion to the soldier's skill list because that makes it easier for him to use draw fire uh, yeah. and also to intimidate people and maybe even perception as well. Um, or wait, not perception. Um, let me look at my handy dandy rule book here. Uh, <laughs> I would say maybe. Maybe stealth as well. That makes uh, sense. If you if you want to add those two together. Now, um, I ha- I don't do that for my games, but I think that's 
totally fine if you want to do that for your games. Well, it's not an issue that comes up too much, but I was just I was just curious, and I, sure. I do love you know you mentioned that you know strength is a dump stat, and one of the one of the key features, and I've I've had some players bitch and moan about this, but I I just got to tell them why are you complaining? This this is brilliant. It makes perfect sense. <laughs> I love how um, if you have rapid shot. You have to have a strength of 13 as a prerequisite, and that, and people whine about that. I'm like, why? That makes perfect sense, you know, it, because it, it not only does it say, okay, you can't just be a dex machine, you know, you got to have the strength to handle that recoil, but also with rapid strike, you got to have that dexterity to handle, you know, the the, the, the fast movement, and it, it made a lot of sense to me to have that interdependency. So, so can I, I can I blow your mind and maybe blow your argument out of the water? Please. Okay, so one of the things that we're we're talking about doing, and I'm almost certain that this is going to be in the next uh, errata that comes out, is we're talking about removing the ability score prerequisites from Rapid Shot and Rapid Strike. No and way. Well, and instead, what's probably going to happen is um, they'll get a special line at the bottom of the feet that says if you don't have a uh, Strength of 13 for Rapid Shot or a... Uh, decks of 13 for rapid strike and you're using um, character scale weapons then you take a minus 5 penalty when you use it instead of minus 2 the reason for this is it creates the problem where if you're a starship gunner uh, you have to have a high strength to use rapid shot on a starship weapon. Well, that, that doesn't, that make, a doesn't make a lot of sense, right? And it's one of those things that where we were trying to integrate starships and character scale stuff as much as possible, but this is one that kind of slipped through the cracks, and it's taken us a while to uh, figure out a way we want to do it. So chances are that'll be a change. And the nice thing is about a change like that, you don't actually end up having to change anybody's character stats or anything like that. So if we decide to do that, that's not official yet, but uh, that's something we're kicking around, and I'm pretty sure that if that happens, it'll be in the next errata push. Oh, wow. Well, I'll be interested to see if it does. That's amazing. Thank <laughs> yeah, you. me too. Thank you. Very cool. Well, moving on, we have a question from Donovan Morningfire. Um, another one. <laughs> <laughs> he had many, uh, and he was curious to know about um, the skirmisher talent and how it interacts with the running attack feat. And obviously, you know, skirmisher gives you the, the plus one bonus to attack rolls. Um, on page forty-six, if you move at least two squares at the end of your move uh, in a different square from where you started, and running attack lets you move both before and after making attack. So a literal reading of skirmisher means you you can't. And he's saying this now. A literal reading of skirmisher means you can't use the two together, as the talent activates when you quote unquote end your move. Um, while a somewhat looser reading means that you can, as your initial move stops, Skirmisher activates, and then you begin your second move after firing. So he's got a scoundrel that's been making dynamic use of Skirmisher and running attack to move, shoot, and then move across the battlefield. And while the GM's allowing it, uh, Donovan's kind of curious as to what the official word would be on that. Uh, the official word is, that's fine, as long as he moves at least two squares before he makes the attack, and as long as when the movement ends, he's not in the same square he started in, but otherwise it's totally fine. Oh, well, there you go. Fantastic. Cool. Well, that, that's, that sounds like a cool combo. I'm actually would pr I mean, probably going to maybe perhaps even build a character around that. Um, I think Skirmisher is just a wonderful talent, so uh, uh, I, think, I think it's a lot of fun. Me too. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Moving on. We have a, uh, okay, uh, kind of a Dark Side Sith-related question here uh, from both uh, two of our posters who kind of echoed themselves, uh, Peatman and Lord Ironballs, who had a question about the Sith Lord ability on page 225, Temptation, mm -hmm. and uh, which, of course, um, forces an opponent uh, 
basically their question was, can you use temptation to force an opponent to take dark side points when they use force powers? And the reason they ask is because the text tells us that the Sith Lord fills their opponent with fear and anger when using the power. And thus, if they were to use the force under those emotions, it would be a major transgression, as outlined on page 94. And they're curious to know, uh, you know if, if that would be a legitimate use of temptation. Um, so, this is one of those things where the flavor text has kind of creeped yeah. into the rules, <laughs> um, unfortunately. I mean, is, is, that's the thing, is it just flavor text here, or...? In this case, temptation, filling you with anger and fear, is just flavor text. Now, it's it's there for a reason, right? Because it, it mirrors what we see with Palpatine doing to, to Luke at the end. I you think... Anger... I, th- I think that, you know, it's a good idea that if the Sith Lord is using this ability on your players to watch their players more closely than you normally would and basically watch them for, you know, aggressive acts or things that uh, it basically thins that line between dark side and light side. So by default, no, because, I mean, otherwise you could basically use temptation and then use force lightning and they couldn't rebuke it because then they're, oh, they're taking dark side points and they can't defend themselves, right? We never want to create a situation where a person can't defend themselves entirely, right? So, yeah, this is a case where the temptation uh, flavor text is just that, just flavor text, and shouldn't necessarily reflect uh, extra dark side points. The mechanical penalties imposed by temptation are clearly spelled out in the temptation description, and that's really all you should go with on that. Now, like I say, you know, thin that line a little bit, but it's not an automatic thing. Gotcha. Okay, well, that makes perfect sense. Um, question for another one from Death MVP. He had a handful, he kind of peppered in there. Penetrating attack, uh, the soldier talent. He's curious to know, shouldn't it burn through shielding as well as hulls? Kind of the idea, whereas, you know, obviously it goes against DR. He wants to know, should it, should it is it just apply to that or also to shielding? Uh, no, it does not apply to shielding, but don't be surprised if you don't see something, or if you do see something like that uh, related to this issue in the Knights of the Old Republic campaign guide. And that's all I'll say. <laughs> wink, 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 nudge, nudge. Gotcha. Indeed. Uh, question two he had. Should it ever be easier to shoot a crewman than the vehicle he's riding in, as there are times when the vehicle's reflex defense can actually be higher than the crewman's, um, even with cover, if it gives cover. Uh, Yeah, that's totally fine. Um, And it's one of those deals where the vagaries of defenses and the kind of abstraction that is defense uh, may create what may seem like a weird question, but at the same time, you know, you might be riding on the back of a very agile speeder bike or an armored car, whereas your your shot wouldn't get through the armored speeder, but because of armor, but in your case, you're not wearing six inches of durasteel plating, and you know, it it could hit you. Yeah, so that's it's rules as written. It's fine, and I think you just kind of have to accept that in the um, ambiguousness of of some defenses, there are going to be situations where you need to come up with the reason why this works. But for the most part, vehicles get their reflex defense bonus from their armor. So this is a kind of this is a case where you want to look at it and say, okay, the armor is so thick that it's turning aside these blaster shots that it's that that I can't possibly turn aside with my character scale armor. Right. And this is really it's really only an issue if you have um, characters with lots of non heroic levels as the vehicles uh, inhabitants. 
Right. And if you know if you're fighting stormtroopers, that's actually a common occurrence. So sure. You know, hey, absolutely. Well, the third Plus question. It's very cool. It's very cool. I keep thinking of those, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of, uh, so I guess, I guess, kind of land walkers, um, or you know, just just spear bikes like the droids are riding on the back of, you know, in, in episode right. one. Uh, you know, yeah, that's an instance where man, it'd be a lot easier to pick him off than to actually damage the the, the mm-hmm. vehicle itself. So yeah. Uh, his third question, he says, in the errata, uh, in regards to the gunslinger, they mention that the gunslinger talents work for pistols and rifles only. So his question was, will the trusty sidearm feature of the gunslinger, should that also not work for rifle? Shouldn't that also work for rifles? Uh, no. The gunslinger <laughs> is designed to be a pistol-using character. Now, we do allow the talents to work for rifles because there are going to be those situations where you need to pick up a rifle, and we don't want to penalize you too much with the talents. But the, the class features... Uh, for prestige classes, in a lot of ways, are a little secondary to talents and feats and the like. So uh, this is one of those situations where there may be you know a little bit of disconnect in the rules. Um, but no, trusty sidearm is is definitely intended just for pistols. Now, once again, if you want to let it work for rifles, feel free to. It's not going to break your game. It just makes more sense from a character standpoint that this should be a pistol focused class. It's a gunslinger, yeah. I mean, right. I don't, I don't conjure up images of you know the spaghetti western cowboy coming out of the bar with a uh, a rifle and going to town. You know, it's, that's why they call it the rifleman. Now, yes. now, it's funny you mentioned the westerns because I'm an enormous western fan, and I really? love the idea of the you know the guy riding shotgun, where, where the phrase riding shotgun came from, oh, yeah. with the long arm, right? But that's that's the rarity, right? If you watch those old westerns, which clearly had a big influence on Star Wars, the the rifle is sort of a secondary weapon, right? They use it for special situations where they need range or stopping power, uh, and most of the time they're using the pistol at their hip. So that's kind of how I see the gunslinger. Pistol wielder, occasionally he might pick up a rifle if he needs to, if the situation calls for it, but mostly it's all about that blaster pistol. Gotcha. Well, that makes sense. Yep. We get a few more questions from Notorious KFC. Um, okay. uh, th- this uh, kind of makes sense to me. I, I, don't, I, I don't know if this needs to be answered, it kinda, but you know, perhaps you can shed light on it. He's curious to know, can you charge um, with uh, p- potentially even powerful charge, as well as tumble during your charge, uh, thus potentially using acrobatic strike, <laughs> plus power attack, all within the same attack action? Does that work within the rules? As, it, as the rules stand right now, yes, it does work. Uh, however, powerful charge, or excuse me, charging and acrobatic strike are two areas that we long ago identified as troublesome spots. So, uh, once again, things that are probably going to be in the errata, but don't consider them 100% official until you see them on our website. Uh, acrobatic strike's probably going to get bumped down from plus 5 to plus 2. And the other thing is charging is not exactly worded as it was intended. So basically the way charging is going to work is that, uh, once it gets eroded, is that when you charge, you have to charge toward your opponent and end your move in the nearest square adjacent to them, right? So you have to charge directly to them, and a charge ends your turn, right? So basically, it's the last thing you can do at the end of your turn. Now this is this come out for a number of reasons. One is the powerful charge acrobatic strike power attack combo, which is just frankly brooktastic, right? And it was yeah, one of those unfortunate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Use it to great it's one of those things that slipped through, right? Um, 
so the thing with having to charge to the nearest space means that you can't, uh, you won't be able to charge and tumble except against opponents with reach weapons. Uh, now the powerful charge power attack combo will totally still be in there. Um, it just because it's it's a legitimate combo, I think. And well, plus, you're sense. if you're if you're a melee wielder, you're kind of at a disadvantage anyways in uh, exactly. in, in damage terms. So that's that's okay. Um, the other thing that kept coming up was the whole okay, I charge in and then withdraw, withdraw routine yeah. or the withdraw. Them. Yeah, yeah, I mean, so the withdraw charge thing, yeah, I mean, that's a little strange, but it, it, it makes sense because you're kind of backing away and then charging towards them. It's a very Darth Maul thing to do, right? But the idea that you charge towards them, slam them with the tech, and then carefully walk away, uh, it, it kind of takes some of the advantage out of charge. And actually, it's we're basically adapting it to work the same way that it works in D&D 4th Edition, which means that when you charge, it's going to end your turn so that you can't back away. So part of the penalty, quote-unquote, for charging is that you end up adjacent to your opponent. And as you'll see in Knights of the Republic, ending up adjacent to your opponent um, when they've got a melee weapon can sometimes be uh, problematic. <laughs> gotcha. Well, I, I can't wait to see. Well, the Not- Notorious had a couple other questions, too. Sure. Uh, he, want, he wanted to know, uh, are you allowed to empower and attune, per the appropriate talents of the Force Adept, your unarmed attacks? Unarmed attacks, no, but let me tell you what you need to get. You need to get your set of combat gloves. Combat gloves, they, got it. <laughs> they let you, they let you, they are weapons, so you can empower and attune them. They add a bonus to your damage, and they are usable with martial arts and your unarmed strikes. So there's no reason, if you're a martial artist, there's no reason not to use combat gloves. Do it. Do it. Do, Do it. it now. Do it now. Get exactly. to the chopper. Sorry. Get to the chopper. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we, we kind of go off. No um, problem. Well, that kind of makes sense because it seems to me that the focus point of that particular, uh, I guess, talent, those talents are to, you know, kind of put force essence into an inanimate object, you know, something sure. that doesn't no- normally have the force. And of course, an arm strike is flowing with the force, it's part of you. So. And you know what? If your game master wants to let you do it without combat gloves, it's not going to destroy the game, right? So feel free to go ahead and do that. But frankly, if you're an unarmed combatant, there's no reason why you shouldn't be wearing combat gloves anyways. Yeah. Yep. Third question he had, he said, is kind of a stretch. Uh, Would you be able to take multi-attack proficiency weapon to negate the minus two penalty from rapid strike or rapid shot? That you know, this is kind of pretty much the purpose of the trigger work talent and gunslinger. And if that's the only way of negating the minus two for rapid shot, is there any way to do this for rapid strike? Not yet. Not but yet. Uh, don't, like I say, don't be surprised if you don't see something that uh, interacts with rapid strike in a more melee focused book in the future, like Knights of the Republic. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Excellent. A um, couple more basic rules-related questions. Uh, one of our posters, Outlaw Night Zero, had a question from his younger brother. Uh, the bracing option, uh, which is, of course, available for auto-fire weapons, uh, it says specifically per word raw in the book that bracing is an option available for auto-fire only weapons, of course, which there are only three of in the book. Is that the case, or can you brace any weapon that auto-fires? Uh, it is, in fact, the case that you can only brace auto-fire only weapons. Well, then the secondary question of this is, what's the purpose of having stocks on non-auto-fire only weapons? Uh, <laughs> you, may have, you may have found a stumper for me off the top of my head. Um, 
That is a great question. Uh, I mean, it's fact, good if it's, you know, hey, they look cool. I mean, hey, I, I totally get that. But, no, it's, it's, it's actually one that uh, I don't have the answer for off the top of my head, but I can get back to you. I know that there is an explanation for this. It's one of those areas of the rules where um, it's not quite as clear. Stocks and bracing as a whole uh, generate a lot of confusion, and so I can totally understand where the question comes from. Um, basically, uh, let's see here. Oh, so the the real question is: so what's the purpose of having uh, a stock if you can't, or uh, on a non-auto fire weapon, basically? Yeah, there's not one, right? Um, but the thing is, it says basically under uh, page 156 it says only heavy weapons, rifles, and pistols with an extended stock can be braced, right? So the idea being, if you have a an auto fire only pistol, for example. Right. If it doesn't have an extended stock, you can't brace it. If it right. does, you can. And as of right so, now, there's no there's no auto fire only pistols, you know, in the core rulebook. But obviously, there's so many more supplements that sure. are coming out. You know, sure. that I'm sure we'll see something similar to that. You know, when when sure. the time comes. Cool. Absolutely. Excellent. Um, and lastly, I, I think I think this is kind of a pretty pretty basic question, but we're going to run it by you anyway because it was asked. Uh, one of our forum posters, Clacky, had a question. There seems to be some debate on the requisite level for a prestige class. Um, if it says seventh level, does this mean that you can start taking it when you reach seventh level, or do you have to already be seventh level? In other words, you know, on your way to eighth level, um, to and and take that first level of the prestige class at eighth level. He keeps hearing of people doing it both ways. You have to already have your 7th level and be on your way to 8th. Your 8th level can be the first one in the Prestige class. And it's kind of clarified by example on the first page of the, of the right. Prestige class uh, chapter, but that's good to know the answers to that. That's right. Well, those are some of our real, more deep rules questions. Let's, uh, I guess, take a breather and uh, step back for a minute and get some more, some more lighthearted questions out there. Great. Uh, we're going to move on to a question called, There's Something About Rodney. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, a lot of our listeners, it seems, were just really intrigued to find out more about you um, and, and the Aww. games you run. That they they were really uh, impressed by the system you designed and and you know the type of gamer you are. And we had a question from uh, Heart of Geo MK2, who's one of our uh, posters on our forums. And he said, "This isn't really a question on rulings, but I really like to to know what uh, to know something about Rodney's currently running campaign status, if he has any, and you know stats for characters and things like that." Uh, yeah, I'm actually running uh, two Dawn of Defiance games. They are both lunchtime games. I run, I run one on Thursday and one on Friday at work. Now, the cool thing about working at Wizards of the Coast is I can take two hours out of my day to run a game, and it's technically work. Yeah. So that's pretty awesome, and I'm not going to lie to you. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's one of the best parts about working there. The only thing that's kind of a drag about lunchtime games is that by the time you get everybody in and settle down, I mean, I'm sure you guys know from running you know, normal evening games, when you get everybody settled down, everybody starts eating, sometimes you can eat up half an hour, even an hour of your time. So some, there are some sessions where we only get about an hour of playtime in. So <laughs> as a result, feeling. we're going a little slow. Um, my Thursday group is working on, uh, they just finished A Wretched Hive, and the, uh, the, the Friday group is about two sessions into the, uh, the Queen of Air and Darkness. So those are coming along a little slower than I would have liked. Both of these <laughs> started in like October, well before oh, the wow. first adventure came out. So <laughs> yeah. they're, they take a little while to get through things. I mean, if we have a combat encounter, <laughs> it can take the whole session. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of a drag about the lunchtime games, but the same token, by the same token, I'm spending my lunch period uh, playing 
Star Wars. Hey, so. do, you, do you think our employer will let us use the conference room for lunchtime games, Chris? Um, not lunchtime games, no. But I, I don't oh. think. I think honestly, though, I think we can definitely get together an after work game. I mean, Dave and I work in IT, so there's no shortage of gamers in our building. Sure. <laughs> well, oh, you know, yeah. the, the funny thing about it is, um, now they. The whole time I've been at Wizards, we've been in the same building, but they actually moved into this building from another one, uh, I think about two years before I got there. And part of the reason they chose the, the, the building was that the conference rooms were specially you know, tailored to be conducive to running games in. Because, <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I run my lunchtime games, so i got to have a good game space to run my games at. I play on Monday nights. I play in a D&D game, 4th uh, edition, run by Mike Merles. And on Wednesday, I play in what I like to call the best D&D game of all time ever, with the best DM of all time ever, Chris Perkins. So uh, everyone is in games constantly. I mean, I've had if I wanted to, and if my girlfriend wouldn't kill me, I could play D and D or Star Wars or Savage Worlds or um, whatever every night of the week. <laughs> yeah, yeah I would much much wife aggro would be had if my life was lived that way. As much as I'd want it to be, I get enough uh, wife aggro from the podcast alone. <laughs> This is very true. Well, that's 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 awesome to hear, man. That's very yeah. cool. Um, and on that note, we also had a question from Darren Varson, one of our posters, and he was curious to know. Um, I was wondering about Rodney's best Star Wars Saga Edition gaming moment. He's sure there has to be a story somewhere from development or playtest or something to that effect. Sure. Um, I don't know about the best one ever, but I'll think the I'll tell you the the one that comes to mind easiest. See, um, my Thursday game has my brand manager Sarah Haynes, uh, and at brand managers they basically oversee a lot of the marketing and uh, sales side of things. So more on the on the business side of Wizards, and so she wanted to play in my Star Wars game to learn more about the game and just basically keep up to date with the rules. And Sarah decided that she wanted to play a Gungan Jedi. And, uh, <laughs> well, that's certainly been very interesting. Um, but anyways, so at one point she decided that she wanted to uh, use Force Grip to strangle a, a Stormtrooper to death. And, of course, I gave her a dark side point. And... Uh, <laughs> Rob Watkins, who's my not only the guy I share a workspace with, he's also the lead designer on the Star Wars miniatures game. Rob turns and looks at her and he goes, "Oh my God, our party has Darth Jar Jar in it." So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, so she's playing a dark side Gungan or a, a, a Gungan Jedi leaning towards the dark side, which is uh, no cause no ends of consternation from me. Misa give in to the anger and the oh, hate. Oh, Lord. Yes. Oh, that's Thankfully, great. I've managed to keep her from doing the voice. So. Okay, well, that's good. That, then you're a step ahead of me, because I've yet to uh, prevent a Gungan PC that I've had in my games from doing the voice, despite threats of uh, you know immediate uh, immediate death and all that, <laughs> you know, all a second edition style. Uh, right. But, um, well, that, that's good to hear. <laughs> well, I've got a, I've got a slightly potentially difficult question here for you from Piedman oh, boy. On, our, on our forums. He says, Rodney, I see a lot of contradictions between you and Gary Sarley on the boards. Vital transfer, quick draw, the existence of NPC-only abilities. Do you guys ever get frustrated with the other when one makes declarations that run contrary to what the other has said? 
Wow. Okay. So, um, not really a difficult question. I, I can I can answer this one. So first, let me say I've known Gary for a long time. He's a good friend of mine. Uh, Gary Sarley and I have known each other for gosh, I want to say more than eight years now. Probably around ninety eight, ninety nine was when we first started talking. Uh, we attended our first Gen Con together. So. Uh, Gary and I go way back, and we both, you know, are big, huge Star Wars fans. Uh, that being said, what basically happens is this: I'm actually the only full-time Star Wars role-playing game designer at Wizards of the Coast. Right? Everybody else that works on the books in a design capacity uh, is is a freelancer, and Gary is one of those. Now, even though he was the developer on the core book and he did some editing on Starships of the Galaxy and other books, he doesn't work in-house. In fact, I'm pretty sure he lives in Texas as well. Uh, so he's down there with you guys. Right. But what happens a lot of times is I'll get on the forums and I'll say, you know what? Uh, I'm going to go answer some questions and I'll get on there and start answering questions and I won't be able to turn around and say, hey man, you know, what do you think about this question? Right, so I'll give an answer and then he'll give an answer. It does get a little frustrating when we don't agree just because it confuses the people that are asking the questions anymore. Um, the good rule of thumb is that basically until you see it appear in uh, official errata or in the Jedi counseling article or something like that. It's not a 100% official game ruling. Um, it's just basically us answering questions off the cuff. Uh, also, when it comes to questions where we do differ, we always make sure and talk it out afterwards, right? Like the vital transfer thing, for example, we've been talking about that for gosh months now. And sometimes it's not a fast process just because I'm working on three books at a time and he's trying to get his PhD and write Jedi counseling articles and right. stuff like that. Right. First, you know, strangely enough, real life sometimes gets in the way. Right. Well, you, you both but, clearly have a lot of time on your hands. Yeah. Tons. Right. Yeah. I mean, I got time to screw around and come on some uh, Star Wars role playing game podcast. So obviously <laughs> time to time to answer a bunch of questions. No, it, it's, it's one of those deals where we always try and talk it out afterwards and come to a conclusion. Um, sometimes I have to uh, lay down the uh, the hammer of justice and basically say, no, we're doing it this way. But we usually manage to come to a, a pretty good agreement. And also the other thing, too, is sometimes I can respond to a question on the forums and you know then we'll talk about it further and we'll have more discussions and I'll change my mind about it or vice versa. And it's just, I mean, it's, it's one of those you know unfortunate side effects of uh, you know, me being an in-house full-time designer and Gary just being a freelancer. Now, Gary's great about answering these questions on the forums. And so, you know, anytime you see a disagreement between us, consider the following, okay? If Rodney and Gary disagree, pick whichever one you like and go with it. There but, you go. <laughs> uh, but there until... But like I say, until it appears in official errata or in print in a book or in a full-fledged article on the website, it's not considered an official game ruling. It's just, you know, like I say, a forum clarification. And in the cases where, you know, conflicts do arise between the two of us, we're going to talk it out and we'll figure out what's best for the game. And sometimes we change our mind, right? Like the, the whole um, rapid shot, rapid strike thing, we've changed our mind a couple of times about that one. And so, you know, until it hits the official errata or official article, it's just a, just a forum ruling. So when we have uh, Gary on the show, perhaps mm -hmm. we'll ask him questions like, um, maybe his parents were like first edition D&D gamers <laughs> and they actually named him GM Sarley. Yeah, we, so for the longest time, I always thought that his 
his uh, moniker was Game Master Sarley, and then his first name was like Steve or something, right? And he was like, no, really, my name is Gary M. Sarley. And I was like, wow, how fortunate. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, that'd be like if my, my name was, you know, Rodney Peter Game Designer Thompson or something like yes. that. Right? RPG Thompson. Yeah. RPG Thompson. Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. Well, it's good to know you guys. Yeah, I, I, I had no idea you guys had that. We're, we're such close friends. That's really good. Now, oh, yeah. speak, speaking of, you guys mentioned going to Gen Con. We had a question from Duncan, um, who posts his Vader's son on our forums. And Duncan asks Rodney, will you be at Gen Con Indy this year? And do you know if there will be some Star Wars saga games being run there? Maybe something from the RPGA. So I don't know for sure if I'll be at Gen Con or not. Chances are very good. Uh, we usually don't find out, honestly, until a month or two before Gen Con whether or not we're going. Um, right. There's bas- basically there's you know 30 some odd people in RPG R and D, and only like 10 people get to go every year. So you kind of have to rotate it out. I'm yeah. in a bit of a good position just because I'm the only Star Wars role playing game designer. So if they want to send someone to do a seminar, it's pretty much me or Rob Watkins, the guy that does the miniatures, and typically. Uh, um, Rob doesn't like to uh, to talk about the role playing game in any kind of official capacity, so I, you know, chances are good. I can't say for certain. I got to go last year, so maybe I don't get to go this year. Um, as for the role playing games, we will have something there. Uh, we'll probably do the Rebel Run again, which is our Star Wars version of the Delve. It's just basically a half an hour, get through as many encounters as you can, combat festival. And oh, then yeah. we'll, also, we'll also have an adventure there. I've been uh, working with Chris Tulock, who I mentioned earlier works for the RPGA. Even if they don't do a, any kind of full campaign, I know for a fact that we are working very hard to get an adventure there. It's probably going to be a Knights of the Old Republic adventure because the oh. Knights of the Old Republic campaign guide comes out at the convention and so does the Knights of the Old Republic miniature set. So it's sort of this, you know, vortex of KOTOR stuff that's swirling around Gen Con. So look for something there, probably a KOTOR adventure, maybe something more, but uh, as we get closer, of course, we'll announce things. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I think you may have even answered the next part of this question already, talking about everything that's going on. But um, Duncan also noted, he said he's concerned. He says it seems to him that Saga Edition is getting almost less support now. It seems like source books are being pushed back, Galaxy Tiles have been canceled, and I'm a bit concerned, he says, about a lack of uh, developing support, not from you, but from Wizards and Lucasfilm in general. Yeah, so um, unfortunately there have been some delays in the schedule, and, and that sucks because, frankly, I want everything I write to come out and people to read it and enjoy it and play with it, right? <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> but, um, so delays do happen. It's unfortunate. I hate it, um, but it, it, it's going to occur, unfortunately. We have not lessened our support internally. Um, I basically am full-time on Star Wars. We've got, let's see here... Five books coming out this year. Let's see here, we got Threats of the Galaxy in May, uh, Knights of the Republic, Force Unleashed, um, Scum and Villainy, and I think I'm forgetting something else. Oh, we had Galaxy Tiles come out in January as well. So you know, we got about five, six products a year coming up. I'm I'm well into work on the 2009 schedule. Unfortunately, we haven't announced any of those, so I can't tell you specifically what that is. But I will say this: I have already started work on the third book for 2009 to give you an idea of how far out in advance we work. Wow. 
uh, yeah, it's, it's an unfortunate things got delayed. Um, I've also been talking to Matthew Burke, who's our uh, new website manager, and we're going to have a lot more articles coming up on the website. Um, but yeah, we want to support it just as much as we can. Unfortunately, you know, when you only do five, six products a year, and then one of them gets delayed, it's kind of a bigger hit than if you did thirteen products a year and one of them got delayed. Right. right. Yeah, it, it's makes- it seems bigger than it is. <laughs> Gotcha. Well, I mean, just from hearing what you said so far, I don't doubt that there's, you know, any lack of support at all. Um, but I mean, I mean, in anyone, I know anyone who's worked in, in publishing or especially in gaming, in the gaming industry in general, especially in the publishing area, will tell you that, I mean, delays are well, common to say the least. And when you're dealing with such heavily licensed content, I can't imagine some of the, the red tape and the paperwork and everything else that has to be gotten through just to, you know, do a, do a basic publication. So that, that must be kind of wild. It gets just a little frustrating, you. but you know, <laughs> you gotta deal with it. You gotta deal with it. Cool. Well, um, let's see. One other question in this vein. We already kind of touched on this somewhat when we were talking about the expanded universe. But one of our posters, Infinity Doctor, he wanted to know, obviously, your your opinions of the expanded universe, uh, the novels in particular. Um, he was curious to know if you read any of the novels, uh, what your thoughts are on the current direction of the novels, uh, <laughs> legacy, you know, Legacy of the Force specifically. Um, if if you read them, he says. And um, also, you know, how much does the how much does the EU content influence design decisions on supplements you guys are creating? Well, I am pretty much totally an EU junkie, and I'll admit that. Uh, <laughs> I actually have lately. I've been more of a fan of the comics than the uh, than the novels. But I in, just yesterday, in fact, I finished reading the last or the well the the second to last legacy novel, the most recent one that was out by I think it was Karen Travis did the last one, and then mm-hmm. Troy Denning is doing the final one. So I have read all the legacy novels. Um, as for my opinion of where they're going, I I'm I'm well known around the office as a liker and that means that basically I like almost everything I'm more inclined to like something than not like it and I've enjoyed them so far I'm not a huge fan of Jason Solo uh, so the, you know a storyline focused on him not exactly knocking my socks off um, <laughs> I, I, I'm not 100% I haven't read every single novel that's out I've missed a few of the prequel novels but I have read Everything from the uh, the New Republic time period. I've read everything in the New Jedi Order and everything in Legacy so far. Um, I read almost all the comics. Uh, one of the nice things about uh, my job is that I get to go to the comic book store every Wednesday, buy comics, and then say, "Oh, well, it's for work purposes and business expense." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> then I spend two hours I, every Wednesday afternoon. I spend about two hours reading comics. So, yeah, that's really <laughs> terrible. Let me tell you. Uh, I'm also actually I'm a really big fan of the video games too. I love Nice Little Republic. I'm really looking forward to Force Unleashed, and so I I um, I will take in, inspiration from anywhere. Uh, I have, like when I ran my, well, I still run it, but when I was updating frequently my website, SWRPG Network, um, I would always try and draw inspiration from the comics as well as the uh, video games and stuff like that. Because while I don't want to get into super obscure things, I I like making it feel like a unified universe. And plus there's no sense in in turning down any kind of of inspiration. So, uh, yeah, uh, EU stuff, I like it. As for how much it influences the design, um, game balance is usually my number one concern. 
I will say that, you know, things like vehicles and starships and droids and equipment, anything that can be condensed down into a nice little compact package without a whole bunch of new rules, I'm far more inclined to pull on stuff like that than I am the, uh, uh, the more rules-heavy stuff. And that makes sense. That makes that I mean that makes a lot of sense, and yeah. I mean if it comes to it and you have the decision, I mean where I mean obviously you mentioned earlier you're gonna, you know there's things you just can't change like you're t- you yeah. know, talking about making the Kotor stuff. I mean is there is there can I mean obviously you would you would take you know the the, the straight up video game and, and movie canon to be more I guess more of a sacred cow than some of the EU stuff. Uh, so the movies are always number one, right? No question about it. If there's a conflict between you and the movies, I always go with the movies just because that's that's the number one. Any kind of uh, cartoons like the 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 Clone Wars animated series and the upcoming you know 3D Clone Wars series, right? And I understand I'm, there's like 30 more episodes coming out of the of the animated too on Cartoon Network. Uh, yeah. Well, the the uh, the they're doing the 3D animated series. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and that's going to be super awesome. I've only gotten to see a little bit of that stuff. My, my cube mate Rob Watkins has uh, seen a lot more of it, but that's going to be super cool. So that stuff kind of takes a little bit higher priority, and then behind that is all the comics and video games and uh, you know novels and stuff like that. As far as the the hierarchy goes, of what will I take as the gospel according to Lucas? Gotcha. Oh boy. <laughs> Oh wow! I want to get that printed on my wall. The Gospel According to Lucas. Now, Love now it. the one thing I will say is, people who played through the Knights of the Old Republic video games will probably really enjoy the Knights of the Old Republic campaign guide because one of the things that I tried to do was go through the video game. I, I replayed it again before we worked on the book. Uh, go through the video games and pick out things like speeders that are just sitting on the side of the road, or uh, you know, ships that you see fly by. Um, ships that you see like on top of a building in the distance, take those and pull those out and put them in the book and give them a story, right? And give them a history. So, you know, I, I love to pick out details like that. And then also having John Jackson Miller, the comic author, work on it with us, we were able to pick out details from the comic books, right? And I had a direct line to the artist. And I called, I could email the artist and say, hey, what's this starship that you can only see the tail end of on page 33 of issue 17? And he'll be like, oh, here let me draw a little sketch for you and so he'd send me back a little sketch and be like thanks i'll just give this to our artists so you know we can we get to do a lot of stuff like that and i think that if you go through the book and look at the pictures and match those up to the stats and then go back and look at the comic book and the video game you're going to see a lot of things that were just you know a a piece of scenery on the side that are now fully Fleshed fleshed out you know vehicles and starships and things that you can use oh that's awesome that's cool well Oh, that's that's incredible. I mean, I'm I'm a huge Kotor fan. I mean, I it is I think possibly my favorite era of all time. So I'm I'm literally salivating over the source book for when it comes out. And we kind of want to move that direction and kind of you know as we, as we end up our, our question and answer session here, we've had um, a few questions dealing with up and coming products. Now, obviously, okay. we're, we're well aware and our posters are well aware, as we said, um, that you know there's a lot of stuff you can't talk about because there's a lot sure. of stuff that hasn't been announced yet. Um, but we have a few questions about announced products. Um, and a few other things uh, regarding okay. uh, future production. Sure. Um, on uh, the on Gleamax, on the, the thread that you actually started for this, uh, there were a couple questions. Um, one in particular we had from McSham. 
uh, who said basically, and this is kind of a kind of an oddly related question. He says, "What's the likelihood of getting something like a, a weekly update on the web? Uh, things like new weapons, alien races, planets, droids, starships, all that." He doesn't really know the specifics of the contract you guys have with with Lucasfilm. I mean, if you're only updating previous material, would would that fall under a blanket of some type? You know, he only asks this because there are some things he just adores about Star Wars, and he'd like to see them again. And the community doesn't have much to go off of as far as upcoming products other than Amazon, and there's you know nothing listed for updates to arms and equipment, aliens, anything like that. Sure. Okay. So um, as far as regular content goes, um, like I said, I've been dealing with Matt Burke, who, who's our website guy. I've been trying to get some regular columns coming out. One of the things I did uh, over the course of the last few months was I wrote essentially the first installment of things that were supposed to become uh, ongoing articles, right? Like we had the University of Sonbra Guide to Intelligent Life, which is a, a tip, highlights one alien species. Uh, the message to spacers, which is the you know picks out a starship or a space station and gives a little bit of history and backstory and statistics for that. And then also um, we have the old Planet Hoppers articles. So those are going to start coming out on a more regular basis. It's taken a while to kind of get the ball rolling because we lost our uh, original web. Uh, web guy to uh, EA, uh, the Electronic Arts, the game company. And so we've kind of had to start from ground zero. And then also, um, Donna Defiance has been a huge resource hog. I mean, there's just no two ways about it. They're big articles. They require a lot of my time, a lot of uh, Ray Valise, our editor, who does a fantastic job, by the way. Old school TSR guy. Ray uh, does a fantastic job laying them out and editing them, but it takes up a lot of his time. We've got, you know, we have to buy the adventures, we have to buy the art, I have to find the art. The Dawn of Defiance Adventures have been a massive undertaking. I'm really glad we're doing them because it's been a huge success and it's really fun, but by the same token, you know, if we're putting out a 42-page article once a month because they've all blown up to about 42 pages. That's 42 pages worth of articles that aren't getting you know, put out otherwise. So after Dawn of Defiance is over, for example, we'll be uh, focusing more on smaller tidbits. But even before then, I'd say in the next few months, you'll start seeing a more steady trickle of role-playing game uh, articles. I can't give you any specific dates. It might take a while because... A lot of our freelancers are, well, frankly, I'm hogging them all for my role-playing <laughs> books. Uh, and much to Matt's chagrin, uh, I, I have to take up their time for the, the books first. I mean, that's that's what really the bottom line is, is the books have to take first priority. But I, I recognize that the web is a totally, you know, valuable resource. I mean, I got my start freelancing because I ran a Star Wars role-playing game fan website and Chris Perkins and J.D. Weicker, who, who J.D. was working at Wizards at the time, noticed my writing and um, gave me a shot, right? So I'm a big fan of web content. I personally don't have tons of time to make it happen, but fortunately we've got some really great articles coming from freelancers, uh, some kind of non-conventional articles too, but um, so yeah, the, the short answer despite all that rambling, is stay tuned. <laughs> and that's a good answer. I, I don't think there's a gamer out there that's going to begrudge you guys for, for spending more... You know, Oh gosh, there's there's not much web content because they're spending more time developing the books. You know, I don't think... Uh, I don't think there's anyone's going to have a problem with that. Yeah. If they do, I think they should probably get their priorities straight. <laughs> when well, the other thing... To- 
the other thing is, usually with books, we have uh, leftover stuff that gets cut from the books that we can then use as web enhancements, you know, for a month or so at a time. Uh Um, But we didn't have that on Starships of the Galaxy because of the way that I designed the layout of the book. You know, each one gets one or two or four pages. I knew exactly how many pages the book was going to take, so we didn't have any overflow. Now, Knights of the Old Republic, for example, I've been doing the, you know, helping with the managing editing pass, and there's going to be a lot of things that are going to be appearing in web enhancements out of that one because there's, I mean, you know, a 224-page book, there's only so much room in the book for things. So inevitably, things that we wrote up for the book are going to get left out. So you'll start seeing more web enhancements as... Uh, you know, as these books come up. Cool. Now, on the note, we're talking about Dawn of Defiance and and you know other web enhancements and, and kind of the adventures and all the time it's been devoted to the Dawn of Defiance. You know, you know obviously mods which are just fantastic. We had a question from Shadowstar, one of our posters, um, and he said uh, basically his question was this. He said this kind of skirts close to the edge of new releases, but um, he had a more general question on it. Is there any thought of publishing a future adventure modules for Star Wars that are someday that are akin to like something like Tempest Feud? I mean, I know there's Dawn of Defiance right now, but are there further adventures, uh, an avenue that you know the official producers of Saga Edition are considering? Um, another question he had was whether or not the RPGA has been pursuing any kind of renewal of a living style campaign for Star Wars with Wizards of the Coast and Lucasfilm um, in lieu of the lengthy Dawn of Defiance modules. The Dawn of Defiance modules are very cool, but they can be, you know, obviously, as we said, lengthy for RPGA purposes. Um, so what might be on the horizon in this department after Dawn of Defiance? So adventures are kind of a, a tricky thing to publish because only one person in the group typically buys them. And you, if you assume that... You know, only one person in the group is going to buy one, and then not every group is going to buy a published module. As many groups don't, they they just don't sell quite as well as you know a source book might. Right? Like I was telling you earlier, that almost everyone picks up these source books uh, it, that picks up the core book, right? Well, that's just not the case with adventures. So they're a little tougher. But that being said, um, both Bill Slavicsek, my boss, and former you know West End Games Star Wars guru, and I are both big adventure fans. And in fact, it was <laughs> sort of my uh, banging my shoe on the podium that got Dawn of Defiance done in the first place, right? <laughs> so uh, right. you know, it was one of those deals where I, I you know I know we need to have adventures out there because people need p- things to play. Published adventures, you probably won't see any standalone adventures coming out anytime soon, but I will say this. We're trying to get more adventure content into the books. Scum and Villainy, which is coming out in November, I want to say. Don't hold me to that because I don't have my catalog in front of me. Uh, Scum and Villainy has a lot of adventure content in it, both short adventures, and it actually should have a full-length adventure in it as well. Um, It just got back from editing, so I haven't laid it out yet, but... Um, yeah, so you'll have some coming. It might be in other books. Uh, and then, you know, if there's enough demand for it, the door's certainly not closed on adventures. And I will continue to bang my shoe on the podium to get more adventures done, right? Uh, as for the RPGA, uh, I know that they want to do another living style campaign. Um, they're watching the Donna Defiance reporting very closely to find out how many people are playing. Uh, response has been pretty good so far. They haven't made a decision yet. Um, I will say this though: if you are, if you want to play in the RPGA in an RPGA Star Wars campaign, I would recommend that you and your group play Donna Defiance and report it. Because that's, you know, if, if they get a good response there, then they will certainly 
um, look into doing a full-fledged campaign. And like I, pardon? So we'll kind of get the impetus up there then for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a test bed, and they're not solely basing the entire decision whether to do it or not on Dawn Defiance, but it is a big contributor. Um, and like I said earlier, they will continue to have support at conventions at the very least. Um, if no campaign gets done, I want them to do another living campaign. Uh, so if you are an RPGA member or if you think you would like to be an RPGA member, then get out there and start reporting Dawn Defiance because that's going to help a lot. Right. Right. Well, I'll, I know there's a lot of RPGA listeners that listen to this cast. So please, guys, take that to heart. and and. Yeah. and Play this mod. It's it's, it's a, these mods are fantastic. Yeah, we're all very amenable to doing another living campaign. It's just a matter of do we have the, the, the is the demand high enough to justify the resources? And I I think <laughs> I Rodney think the answer is yes. But then again, it's not my resources that are getting managed. So <laughs> right. Well, that makes sense. And yeah, thanks for the Cruise Chef reference. Yeah, no no <laughs> problem. <laughs> Intelligent humor. It's yes. the best humor. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm sort of the Dennis Miller of Star Wars role-playing game design, so... Oh, dear. <laughs> I miss Dennis Miller. What is he doing now? I'm not sure. I haven't seen him in, like, forever. I H- know he was hosting HBO football. HBO stuff, isn't he? Still? 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 I'm not sure. I miss him, though. He had a great show on HBO. He was funny. Very funny. Well, <clears throat> we had a question actually echoed twice uh, from uh, both Donovan Morningfire and one of our posters, Raz, who basically both said, dude, What's going on with the Force Unleashed campaign guide? Uh, they were the understanding the thing was done, ready to be shipped to the printers, and now they're showing a release date of like September, and the game is still as of as of this post he put. You know, I mean, as of right now, showing a release date on Amazon in late July, which was moved up from the August date. What's going on with Force Unleashed? Yeah, so I actually um, knew this question was coming, so I had to go talk to my evil overlords and make sure that I could get special permission to answer the question. Basically. What I can say about it is this. The Force Unleashed campaign guide contains a lot of information that is heavy spoilers for the Force Unleashed video game. So every time the game gets delayed, unfortunately, we've had to delay the book because Lucasfilm isn't going to let us publish a book that has huge spoilers for their major multimedia event uh, in, you know, in, in that book, right? So basically the release of the book is tied to the release of the game. I can't say anything about specific release dates because frankly, I don't know. I'm not even sure LucasArts knows. Um, (laughs) but they, you know, it's all based on when they get the game ready to ship. Uh, however, the game being, the book being delayed has actually been kind of a blessing in disguise because, um, as I had reported earlier, we, you know, we had, We'd had the book ready to go in November, which was the original release date, which meant that everything had to be done in, like, October. Well, the game gets delayed, and so things get pushed back. I did another editing pass on it. Um, I, you know, I got to got to work on the book a little bit more, so that was a really, really good thing. So then the, the game gets delayed again, and we push back from our June release date to whenever now. Well, the good thing about this is I mentioned earlier that we have our new playtest po- process in place, and so I've taken that book and sent it back out for another round of playtesting in addition to the original round it got. So hopefully, fingers crossed, the book is going to be um, pretty mechanically sound, which is important because, I mean, I'm sure you guys have seen the trailers for Force Unleashed the video game where they're throwing Star Destroyers around and doing all kinds of crazy stuff, right? Well, we want to make sure that if we include something like that in the role-playing game, it's not so hideously broken that it makes the game not fun anymore. So it's been it's been a blessing because we've been able to send it back out for some more playtesting. 
So, well, that's never a bad thing. So we'll yeah, it, it's it's a drag too because when 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 I designed the book uh, along with you know uh, the the other freelancers that worked on it, we really put made this not just the Force Unleashed source book, but it's also a great source book for the dark times, right? The time between Episode three and Episode four, and it's it's very Empire heavy, so. A lot of the information in the book is about you know the Galactic Empire, tons of characters and vehicles and ships and information that I wanted to come out like November, but unfortunately, just the way delays work, you know, like I was talking about those inevitable delays earlier, uh, it hasn't come out yet. So it's coming this year, hopefully, knock on wood. If nothing more than a shoestring breaks, it's coming this year. It's going to be very good if you're running a Dark Times campaign. Uh, I hate it that it's gotten pushed back, but like I say, with the extra playtesting, hopefully it'll be more mechanically solid than it would have been if we'd made the uh, you know the June release date. Cool. Well, hey, you got to you got to look for the silver lining, and that's uh, that's important. Yeah, yeah. and like I, I mean, say, I, I, I want everything I write to get out there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean that that's got to be a, a heavy frustration. So yeah. yeah, I can I can totally see where that where you're coming from in that regard. Well, we got two questions uh, more relating to up and coming products that kind of stray into uh, potential cannot comment territory, mm-hmm. but uh, they posted them, so I'm going to ask anyway. Sure. Um, we have uh, Corporal asked. Um, I know Rodney can't talk about unannounced products, but my question will be: if there is interest in Wizards of the Coast to publish uh, any novel related products, um, such as a new Jedi Order source book. Uh, interest, certainly. Um, I tend to look more at things like eras and themes than specific novels and novel lines, but the one that he quoted there, New Jedi Order, is both a novel line and an era exactly. all its own, right? Yeah. Um, I, I can't say anything specifically about New Jedi Order because, uh, you know, we haven't made any decisions on that. It's not been announced, uh, right? But certainly open to including novel material from the novels uh, in any of the source books we do. Uh, would I like to do a New Jedi Order source book someday? Certainly. It's not terribly high priority right now just because there's a lot of other really you know, great stuff that's out there and that is currently being released, but it's certainly not off the schedule, not off the, you know, the, the table. Right. And, um, even if we don't necessarily do a source book that breaks down each individual novel, don't be surprised if you see things from those novels in other books. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that, that makes sense. And I can, I mean, that, that, that makes good sense. Um, but I, that's another. I think aside from Kotor, that's that's probably an era I really enjoy because just as a player, when you play in it, it's kind of easiest to do so without fear of messing up canon too terribly much. Well, so, that's one of the reasons why I really like the Legacy era, right? The, yeah. the Legacy comics. I'm not sure if you've read those, but yes. the the Legacy comics. It's sort of the everything mishmash. I've got the Empire and Sith Lords and bounty hunters and yeah. you know everything else you want to throw into the big pot and stir up. And you can also kind of go off and do your own thing and not mess up continuity. So, yeah, I mean. That's and that's the kind of thing that I that I look for in deciding what we do, right? Like, Nice Little Republic, is one of those time periods where we had a lot of freedom to do what we want to do, and it also gives the players and game masters a lot of freedom. And that's really important to us is making sure that whenever we put out a product, it is going to, you know, empower the players and game masters to really make their campaigns, you know, very Star Warsy and feel like they have some kind of impact. Right. Excellent. One more of these, I guess, 
potentially confidential territory questions. Okay. Uh, Lord Ironballs, one of our posters, said, you know, hey, I know this may fall into confidential territory, but what are the chances that an epic source book will emerge for SWSC? And what is Rodney's thoughts when it comes to gaming beyond level 20? Is it at all preferred, or is it just a turnoff for you? Uh, I will say chances are slim on that one, just because, uh, and it, it has nothing to do with, you know, that I hate epic levels or anything like that. I just kind of feel like every time you expand the game out to another set of levels, all you're really doing is expanding the granularity of those levels, right? I mean, if if 20th level is your cap, then you put your most powerful guys at 20th level and your least powerful guys at level 1, and then everybody else falls in the middle there. But as soon as you extend it out to level 30, well, all you're really doing is kind of stretching things out, or level 40, or, you know, whatever you want to say, right? Now, that being said, if you want to play past 20th level, it's really not hard to extrapolate how the progressions continue to go. So, you know, go ahead and, and feel free to. Um, we won't be supporting it officially. We frankly just don't have enough products in the product line to be able to say, oh yeah, and also this book contains epic level rules, right? We, we want to keep everything... We want to make sure that every book is as useful to as many players and game masters as possible. And unfortunately, epic level rules require, you know... The shifting of, of power, right? I mean, now, I can think of a lot of situations where you might want to go beyond 20th level, right? Like, if you're running a Dark Empire-style campaign, mm-hmm. feel free to go beyond 20th level. And if, you know, if we ever did a Dark Empire-centered source book, it might be something we would look into. It's not completely off the table, but I would say that the chances are slim, is, is the best way I can put it. I mean, uh, I know that some people like that, but there's there's frankly just not enough demand for it, too. Well, that make, that makes sense, too. It's, it seems to me like it's kind of one of the... And there's, there's so much else there's a demand for sure. um, that would kind of be on the, I guess, back burner developmentally. Yeah, it's, um, it's, very, it's very low priority. Okay, yeah. And, uh, well, that's, you know, at least at least we know that uh, because there's there's been a lot of talk about it. Personally, I prefer low-level gaming. One of the things that's frustrated me about prior, uh, I guess, D20 systems is the fact that low-level gaming is almost unviable. And mm-hmm. I don't find that issue with this system. So I, I one more reason I absolutely love this system <laughs> is that I can roll up a first-level character and kick ass with it and have fun. And, you know, they, they don't have to be the ruler of the galaxy. And, right. uh, you know, even then they can still kick the crap out of a stormtrooper. So, right. uh yeah, I, I love it. Um, and one final question for you, sir. Okay. Um, you know, you've taken such time to be with us today, and this is kind of a, a question that um, uh, it was actually a part of what was posed by one of our posters, Outlaw Night Zero. And uh, I'm kind of going to add to it myself. As I, as I mentioned, one of my favorite campaign settings is the is this KOTOR, Knights of the Old Republic. And I'm just tickled pink that there's the, the, you know, the, the, the campaign guide coming out. And Outlaw Night Zero asks, is there anything you can mention on the upcoming Knights of the Old Republic campaign guide? Can you tell us, um, I mean, anything about that setting? Because there's been a lot of talk about it. A lot of people are really looking forward to it. Um, and in addition, can you give us, I mean, I know you don't have your publishing schedule in front of you, but kind of a rough outline and estimate for those who don't know or haven't taken time to get online. And what 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 order are the most next most recent publications, announced publications coming out in? Okay, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll tackle the last part first. Um, the next thing we have coming out is Threats of the Galaxy, which comes out in May. 
Now, Threats okay. of the Galaxy is basically, uh, I, I, turn, I, I call it the monster manual for Star Wars, but don't think it's all creatures because it's not. In fact, it's mostly NPCs. Um, basically, we wanted to take the good parts of the old Ultimate Adversaries book, which I felt were like the generic uh, NPCs, and bring that out and do a full book out of that. Now, one of the complaints we got when the Saga Edition core book first came out that I, you know, I thought was a legitimate complaint was that we didn't devote as much space to... Uh, sample bad guys and mm-hmm. and adversaries, right? And that's you know that's just an unfortunate side effect of of the book being uh, shorter, right? So we wanted to, and it's funny, the idea for Threats of the Galaxy came about when Chris Perkins and I were going through the galleys. Um, for the core book. Now, galleys, for, for those of you that don't know, basically they print out the the pages of the book, um, two pages to a sheet, and then you go through and you make sure that everything is correct on them. And that's also where you make edits for space, right? They say, okay, you need to shrink this by a quarter of a page, go through and edit out a quarter of a page worth of stuff, right? Well, we're going through and we're editing out, you know, how am I going to lose this stat block? Well, I got to take out this starship. And I cut, uh, we cut, I can't remember what character it was and i said you know what we should just do a book that is you know npcs and chris looks at me and he says okay i'm gonna go put that on the schedule i was like oh okay i'd <laughs> been at, i'd been at wizards about two weeks at this point and i was like wow i just got something on the schedule fantastic uh but yeah so so threats is going to have a lot of generic npcs in it it's also going to have a few um famous characters from the star wars saga in it so for example in the bounty hunter section you're going to find Django fett um, but then it's mostly characters, and then there is a chapter full of creatures and a chapter full of droids. And also, like the characters chapter, the creatures and droids are mostly generic things that you can find you know, throughout the Star Wars universe. They're all designed to be very modular so that you can kind of slot in your own species. None of, them, none of the stats include a species, for example. So yeah. you take the you know, mercenary stats and slap the Rodian species you know, on it, and you've got the you know, your Rodian mercenaries, right? Um, we want it to be a utility book that you can use at the table. And I don't think we've actually talked about Threats of the Galaxy very much in the past, so consider this an exclusive first look at Threats of the Galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, but, so that's coming out in June or in May. And then in June, we have the Game Master screen, which is going to be awesome. It's uh, actually a hard stock, kind of I've like a... that hard stock, man. It's, it's like yeah. really poor stuff. It's like a it's like a, a book cover, like a hard hardcover book cover, which is great because not only does it you know stand up to wear and tear, it also doesn't want to fold inward like a cardboard screen does, uh, and it's also the shorter size, so it's easier to see over. It's really good. I've got a prototype that I use for my Dawn of Defiance games, and I really like it. I also designed the interior, so I'm probably a little bit biased there, <laughs> but uh, yeah. So, anyways, so that's coming out in June. Um, then in August we have Knights of the Old Republic, which not only comes with the campaign guide, but also August is the release date for our Knights of the Old Republic miniatures. So uh, I'm pretty happy about that because I didn't get a ton of the uh, KOTOR era miniatures from Champions of the Force. So I'm really looking forward to buying a few cases of KOTOR minis myself, <laughs> uh, just so I can start running a KOTOR campaign. So that's coming out in August. Um, sometime... Oh, sorry. And then November we have 
Scum and Villainy, which is the uh, guidebook to scoundrels, smugglers, crime lords. Basically, if you take um, all the fringe characters of the galaxy and you want to do a source book about them and about running fringe campaigns, that's what Scum and Villainy is uh, trying to be. We're still working on that one. It's uh, back from editing, which means that I get to take my second development and managing editing crack at it. But, uh, yeah, so that's coming out in November. Sometime in that area there, The Force Unleashed is going to be coming out. I, I don't know exactly when because uh, we have to, you know, we're kind of at the whim of LucasArts on that one. But right. uh, Force Unleashed is somewhere in there, I hope, sooner rather than later. But I can't say for certain. Uh, so that's kind of our release schedule for the next year. Uh, as for Knights of the Old Republic, uh, it is. It covers the time period starting with the Great Sith War uh, at 4,000 before, years before the Battle of Yavin. That's the old tales of the Jedi comics. Mm -hmm. And then it goes up through and slightly beyond the end of the second Knights of the Old Republic video game. Uh, it covers not only the tales of the Jedi comics, um, but it also covers the... Knights of the Old Republic comic book series by John Jackson Miller. Uh, it covers uh, the video games part one and two, and then kind of tries to fill in a lot of the gaps between them. For example, we talk a little bit about what happens between the time that uh, the Tales of the Jedi comics uh, end and the Knights of the Old Republic comics begin, because there is such a leap in... Um, aesthetics of the galaxy so we kind of talk yeah. about why why that happens and why the technology is kind of different uh what happens to some of those characters now i will say we don't focus as much on the tales of the jedi stuff but it is included and we do support uh campaigns during the great sith war but most i, I would say the most of the focus is on the jedi civil war which is the events of knights of the republic one mm -hmm. video game and uh the mandalorian wars which is the uh, comic book series. So those are the two big focuses, but we do focus on the other stuff as well. Um, it's a complete campaign guide. The first, I want to say, like a uh, third of the book, maybe maybe more than a third of the book, is dedicated to building characters in the Knights of the Old Republic era. Uh, it comes with you know new talents, feats, prestige classes, uh, equipment, uh, including... Uh, some uh, a system to create some of the uh, unique weapons and items from the video games. Mm -hmm. um, all that's going to be in the character creation side of things, and then we've also got uh, a chapter on vehicles, chapter on droids, and then chapters on the Jedi, the Sith, the Mandalorians, and the Republic as factions. That includes all of their characters and vehicles and starships and weapons and stuff like that too. So. Uh, trying to hit a, a pretty wide spectrum of stuff from the game, uh, from the games and comics, and fill in our own gaps as well. Um, the emphasis on the book is providing kind of a toolbox that players and game masters can use to create their own KOTOR campaigns. So, right. And you mentioned that was kind of the focal point for I mean, a lot of the supplements you guys are doing is having that, you know, sort of toolbox feel. You know, yeah, you can, you can grab this, add it on, and, and use it for that. You know, well, we want this in the setting, so we'll grab this. Pretty much, yeah. And I will admit that uh, I got to have a lot of fun in designing uh, or coming up with the backstories for a lot of the vehicles and droids. And one of the things that I, I really try to focus on when doing stuff like that is uh, looking at a lot of the detail in the video games and comics and picking things out of the background 
and fleshing them out further. So uh, those who have a, uh, a lot of experience with the video game will definitely notice um, strong inspiration and things taken directly from the video games. Uh, besides, you know, besides the obvious things like Sith Troopers and Darth Revan and right. stuff like that. Well, I, I, for one, just can't wait to see it. It's it's going to be absolutely amazing. But the yeah. thank you for talking about it. It's clear you're excited about it. And I mean, yes. hearing hearing the developer <laughs> be so excited about it gets me excited about it. Yeah, well, so, you know, I, I love the Knights of the Old Republic setting. And having, you know, John Jackson Miller work on it with us, uh, Abel Pena, who is a well-known... Uh, EU author did some great stuff for us as well, and then Sterling Hershey, who is a West End Games veteran as well, uh, was also one of the designers on it. So it's got a hell of a design team, myself not included. I I did write on it, but I don't want to, you know, say that I'm a hell of a designer. But uh, it's got a, a hell of a designer, man. <laughs> thank you. It's got a hell of a design team. Uh, some of the art that's coming back is just phenomenal. I mean, it's going to be a gorgeous book, I think, and I'm really excited to see the whole package come together which should be very, very soon. Well, that's great, man. I, I just I just can't wait. Well, yeah. thank you for taking the time to answer all this just, just hullabaloo of questions. Yeah. I know our podcast is, is getting over two hours at this point. Yikes. And uh, this is the longest episode we've had, and I don't think a second of it has been any wasted time. But um, we, at this point, I think it's, uh, it's kind of time to move on to our, our D20 docking bay, wouldn't you say, Dave? I would say so. Let me... Well, uh, hold on. I think we need to maybe perhaps... Yep. Place a call to our good friend. Oh, do we really now? Well, maybe. I don't know. Oh, I mean, if he's boy. at his post. I don't know. Hold on a second. I have a bad feeling about this. Ah, see, there it is. Anyway. You should have a bad feeling about this. Yeah. <laughs> we always do. Uh, TK421, are you there, sir? See? Every time. Dead air. Every time. TK421. Uh, oh, hey, man. I'm here. Hello? Uh, yeah. All right. What's up, man? Hey, TK, I've got somebody else uh, here from uh, from Wizards. His name is Rodney here. I know. Is Rodney there? Yeah, he yeah is. I'm here. Oh, uh, it's nice to meet you, sir. <laughs> nice to meet you, too. <laughs> hey, he's talking to me. <laughs> uh, uh, well, how are you hosers doing out there? <laughs> We're great. Where are you at these days? Oh man, I'm I'm on I'm on the Death Star this week, man. Oh, yeah. Oh no, it's great, man. They're building it up. You know the Emperor, he coming out next week to speed up production, get us back on track. My commanding officer, though, I think he's a little worried about it. Really? That would be too. Yeah. Um. Probably. Well, man, we've been, we've been taking the opportunity, man. We've been taking the opportunity to get us some target practice in, man. We've been just going to town, you know, honing our elite stormtrooper skills, man. And uh, I've been working hard with my heavy repeating blaster rifle. Right. Oh, yeah, man. We've been getting down there with the uh, with the repeating blasters and stuff, and they got these stocks, man. You just you butt up right next to you and just pop it up and up and up and up. You just let it fly, man. Those, those energy bolts, man, they fly like bees coming out of angry hives, man. <laughs> they just tear stuff up. And so you've been having to practice, right? Oh, hell yeah, man. It's hard as hell. I'm tell you what. It seems like it's a lot harder to shoot when I'm doing that. Right, yeah, as it would be intended. Yeah, yeah, I know it, man. I know it. Well, listen, I can't talk too long, Holders, but um, 
uh, you know, it's, it's good talking to you. And, uh, and uh, Mr. Thompson, sir, I want you to know that we're going to get this Death Star back on schedule. And we're going to get it built on time. That would make me most happy. Hey, yes, sir. Tell, tell, tell the guys to watch out for the Millennium Falcon. The, the aluminum Falcon, what? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Listen, Holder, I gotta go. I'll talk to y'all later. All right. Whatever. Bye, TK. <laughs> you know, he's, he's talking about that target practice. It makes you wonder, do you think they target practice with the bar- broadside of a barn? Probably. I mean, gosh, you know, judging from the game that I was in today, I think the system is very accurate in terms of how hard it is to hit things <laughs> in Star Wars because we couldn't hit the broad side of a barn with our blaster rifles in the game That's I played right. this afternoon. Yep. But speaking of blaster rifles, this is going to bring us now to our D20 docking bay. Twenty docking bay hosers. When it don't be making sense, we be making sense of it. All right. Welcome to the bay. Welcome to the bay. And uh, we have our special guest, of course, GM Rodney, in the bay with us, which is a wonderful thing, I believe, because we have what could potentially be a very sticky question in the bay today. So, are we ready for this? We're ready. I think so. All right. Well, I got an email from, uh, actually, excuse me, a, a post from uh, Duncan, who posts his Vader's son on our forums, and he said, here's a question for you. Um, I was following a thread over on Wizards about this, and I didn't really recall getting a decisive answer. Blaster rifles, blaster carbines, pistols, folding stocks, extended stocks, how do they all interact with weapon talents, uh, minus five modifiers for using rifles one-handed, attacks of opportunity, etc.? There are just a ton of interconnected issues here. Basically, what happens when a blaster rifle is used with a folded stock? Can you use pistol group talents with it? Can you use it one-handed without a minus five penalty? How is a rifle different from a carbine? It's just all very confusing. Can you please clarify? And uh, this was echoed by a couple people, so we thought we just kind of might lay it out for you and uh, work to work it all out for you. First of all, I mean, it is, like much else in this Marvel system, very simple. I think many folks are making this a little too complicated, um, so let's take the time to clarify a few precepts that should serve to make some things a bit easier. Um, and with Rodney's help, I think we'll be able to do a fantastic job. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, much confusion, I think, also comes from the fact that people ignore the retractable stock sidebar that's available on page 125 of the, of the core rulebook. Um, for some reason, people just seem to ignore sidebars. I don't know why. I think they're there to be seen. That's kind of the point. Is <laughs> to go, hey, look at this. It's bold and in a different color. Hey. Well, you know, it's funny you should mention that. I was actually, when you, when you told me this was going to be on the uh, docking bay, I, I was flipping through the book trying to find retractable stocks. Retractable stocks, where are they? It took me like 10 minutes before I remembered, oh yeah, it's a sidebar. So I can I can sympathize. <laughs> well, for those of you who don't know, it's there. Page 125 of the Core Rulebook talks a lot about retractable stocks. But basically, um, yeah, using according to the sidebar, using a rifle with a retractable stock, um, when it's folded, allows you to treat the rifle as a pistol, and this is verbatim, for the purposes of proficiency and range. Now, the real question here, and maybe you can help us out with this, Rodney, is sure. can you use pistol-based feats, talents, etc., with a folded stock rifle in the same way, or is it only a pistol for the purposes of proficiency and range? Sure. Now I can understand where the confusion comes in. Um, basically, 
rules as written, you treat it that way, you know, for the purposes of proficiency and range only. So that means if you're proficient in the weapon, you don't take the proficiency proficiency penalty, and you use those range modifiers. Now, that having been said. Um, I don't think there's any reason why if you have weapon-focused pistols and you're using a weapon with a folded stock, why you shouldn't be able to gain the benefits of that just because you're, it effectively becomes a pistol for the purposes of proficiency. Now, proficiency is actually the biggest part of, of a weapon, and um, this actually kind of calls back to the weapon familiarity uh uh, species features like the Wookiees are have have bowcaster familiarity, right? Right. The intent of familiarity is basically to let you use an exotic weapon as a weapon of another group, right? So that you can take those talents and feats for right. that weapon group and not for the exotic weapon. Uh, this kind of falls along the same lines um, in that I could see the spirit of it being that you can use. Um, talents and feats for pistols for example when the stock is folded rules is written that is not the case but it is i think like perfectly it might be acceptable. an acceptable house rule or something a very acceptable house rule and it's something that uh, we've been looking at for a while now don't be surprised if um, the language gets clarified to allow that as it stands now that is not the case though um, we, <laughs> I found that one of the things we've done is with our errata, we've tried to open things up rather than close them. So this might be something that gets opened up in the future. Right now, that's not the case, though. Okay. So yeah. Now, it, it, in addition, the uh, yeah, I mean the now the another thing too, and to clarify with you, the sidebar also says that with the folded stock, you can fire that rifle in one hand without incurring the minus five penalty. I mean right. that's that's obviously correct. Well, the other question I guess that should beg the, beg the question then is. Can you perform an attack of opportunity with the folded stock rifle? Uh, I believe technically that's correct. Um, let me double check on that, though. Uh, boy, you snuck this one in on me here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> snicky, snicky, sir. Um, let's see here. Uh, yeah, well, any, we we any, any weapon with a folded stock can be used to to, uh, to make an attack of opportunity. So if you've got and a rifle sense. with a folded stock... You can shoot them with it. And that makes sense. Um, so obviously that's kind of the, the point of, of, of having that folded stock on there. Um, is so obviously you can fold it and you know and make that attack of opportunity just as if you're using a pistol. Um, and that's, it's a big advantage for rifles, for example, because you know otherwise you wouldn't necess- you know wouldn't necessarily be able to make a you know an attack with them. Now carbines have that advantage; they can already make attacks of opportunity. So that's even that's with a big stock, benefit. Yeah. right? Even without yeah. a stock, right? But oh, yeah, even you know, without a stock. Putting your folded stock on a rifle—that's not a—I mean—that's not a bad idea if you want to make uh, attacks of opportunity with that particular weapon. Not a bad idea at all. And of course, if you have a fully extended stock and it's on an auto fire only weapon, you can brace to reduce your penalty for auto fire, which is something you obviously can't do with uh, with a non-auto fire weapon that that uh, has a stock folded in, or, or an auto fire only weapon that has its stock folded in. So, the other fourth thing I guess we should mention to you listeners out there: um, a lot of folks are completely unaware, I guess, because they don't read the errata, of the inaccurate and accurate weapon properties that have been added to many weapons in the in the core rulebook. And uh, this is covered in the errata, and uh, it makes a rather big difference for a lot of your weapon choices. Um, in particular, the carbine, one of the more popular weapons out there, is treated as an inaccurate weapon, uh, which means, of course, it doesn't have any long range. So that's a kind of a big deal. So, um, short answers to your question, Duncan. Uh, what happens when a blaster rifle is used with a folded stock? Well, you could fire it with one hand in one hand without penalty, 
if you're proficient in pistols, you'd be proficient in it. Uh, its range becomes that of a pistol, and you can make an attack of opportunity with it. Um, but as Rodney clarified, you know, raw rules is written. Uh, you can't use your pistol talents with it, but that probably wouldn't be too game-breaking of a house rule if you wanted to do it. And uh, that's pretty much the standard answer to that. As far as what's different from a carbine uh, and a rifle, um, with a uh, in, in terms of a carbine, if it's got a stock or no, you can still make attacks of opportunity with it. And it is an inaccurate weapon, so it does not possess long range, which is not a limitation for most rifles. So... I guess that's the short answer to that question. Uh, anything else to add in that regard, Rodney? Uh, not really. Just tell everybody, um, you know, make sure you check the errata. It does make a few more significant changes, and all upcoming source books will build off of that errata as well. So you will see accurate and inaccurate weapons in, for example, Knights of the Republic and Force Unleashed. I thought that was a marvelous idea because when I when I first saw the book before I looked at the errata, I was like, "Oh God, what's the point of a sporting blast?" <laughs> yeah, it was, was like, it was one of those oh. things that got it, it got trimmed out by accident when the table got moved from a word file right. over to a uh, over to the InDesign file. We use Adobe InDesign to lay out our our right. books and everything, and I think it was one of those things that got lost in the uh, transition or cutting phase by accident. Gotcha. Well, that makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, check out the errata. And, and, Duncan, I hope that answers your questions and kind of lays things out for you. And I guess that's going to kind of bring us to the end of our D20 docking bay and the end of this uh, extraordinarily long and extraordinarily wonderful <laughs> episode of the Order 66 podcast. We we missed out on you guys last week. GM Dave was out of town. So we made it up this week with a double-length episode of extraordinary content, possibly the best episode I think we've had to date. And I just want to thank GM Rodney, Rodney Thompson, obviously designer for the system, uh, Wizards of the Coast, for, for being here with us on the show, taking time out of his incredibly busy schedule to to be with us and and answer the community questions and uh, and and our uh, allay a lot of our fears and, and bolster a lot of our hopes and get us excited about everything else that's coming out and uh, to just celebrate this this amazing system that we all love so much. No, it's my pleasure. And anytime you guys uh, need another helping hand, feel free to uh, give me a shout. I can't always uh, guarantee anything, but uh, it's really been a lot of fun and I've really enjoyed it. So thanks a lot. So there you heard it, guys. Uh, it's now a three person podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what that meant. <laughs> well, uh, with that, thanks again, and uh, Gamer Nation, I hope uh, you guys managed to stick around for the full cast, and uh, I really hope you guys will log on to the forums at uh, d20radio.com slash forum, or email myself, gmchris at d20radio.com, or gmdave at d20radio.com with any questions you might have. And with that, I would say peace, love, and good gaming. That's right, and keep them dice a-rolling. This is Django Fett, and I never listen to the Order 66 podcast. Damn Jedis. D20 Radio, where gamers roll. www.d20radio.com This podcast and related websites are not endorsed by Lucasfilm Limited, 20th Century Fox, or Wizards of the Coast, and are intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. The official Star Wars site can be found at StarWars.com. The official Wizards of the Coast site can be found at Wizards.com. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, D20 logo, D20 system references, all named pictures of Star Wars characters, vehicles, and any other Star Wars-related items are registered trademark and or copyright of Lucasfilm Limited, Wizards of the Coast, or their respective trademark and copyright holders. All original content of this podcast and its related website, including graphical, textual, audio, and visual information, is the intellectual property of the Order 66 podcast. 